friends and enemies. How's it going? We're, it's a, it's a kind of lovely-ish day. We're back on the mic after a little hiatus. Welcome back to Panastoria. I'm Lindsay. I'm Jonah. Kevin's also present. Yeah, as always. We're actually recording during the day this time, Yeah. which is nice. The sunlight might, you know, kill us, though. Eh. We're going to burn up on the air. <laughs> we'll be all right. Uh, yeah, so today we're talking about the Soviet-Afghan War, as promised. Yeah, it's, a, it's not really highly talked about, even though it's had... It's like at the center of a lot of a lot of what's happening. Yeah, I mean, now. particularly when uh, the invasion of Afghanistan by NATO happened in 2001. Yeah. They started talking about this war quite a bit, but I think Lindsay and I were too young to really... I remember seeing, like, images on the news of abandoned Soviet tanks, <laughs> and that was kind of like my, that's really all of the recognition of that that I have from, yeah, from, from the news, like, from, from that era when we, or when NATO invaded Afghanistan. I don't really remember, but yeah, I, I feel like this war, it's almost like, yeah, it gets, it gets brought up, but, like, in passing, it's never really actually discussed, especially, really, because when we focus on, like, proxy wars in the Cold War... I feel like we focus a lot more on Vietnam, for instance, but I mean, this was the Soviet Union's Vietnam and is really one of the bigger proxy wars in a way, even though it wasn't really a formal war, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, it was. It like, was a, in the sense of a proxy war, like it, it was, was, wasn't quite because the Soviets were actually involved. Yeah, physically. it was a civil war that the Soviets intervened in. Yeah. So. If you mean, yeah, I mean, intervening is the same as invading. I guess. Well, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the intervention in Afghanistan by NATO, it was yeah, an yeah. invasion. Same in Iraq. It's really funny. I just I just think it's funny because whenever I see the word intervention, I also think of, like, interventions. It's like, we need to talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I feel like the Soviets could have used an intervention before they intervened in Afghanistan. It would have made the A&E show a lot more interesting. Not saying it was, <laughs> not saying that show wasn't interesting, but... <laughs> oh boy. Anyway, we should probably start. Yeah, we should start. But just quickly, a couple in our for those of you who listened to our last other nonsense, just kind of how significant this. We did talk a little bit about how significant. Yeah. We felt this was, and we had a discussion. Someone said argument, but I'm like, I don't think it really was. But it was yeah, a discussion. It, it, it was. was it was a bit of an argument, but yeah. But I mean, not, it, really. it, not in the way people were no. saying it was. No, we weren't fighting. But, <laughs> no, it was more of a, it was a it was a discussion about because in my view, I feel a lot of something like 9/11 might probably might not have happened if Soviets hadn't intervened in Afghanistan. I know that's kind of up in the air because we'll never know, but. Yeah. As you'll find, I'll point out bits and pieces here of like my viewpoint on this, but I mean, it's also fair. Like I said to Lindsay during that episode, it's fair to disagree with that because. I, I think mean, it's really just an interpretation of, it's just an interpretation of history and there can be numerous interpretations exactly, of the same yeah. event, especially complex events like this that are really just linked to previous other events that were complex. Yeah. And obviously <laughs> like there's nev- never going to be any way to tell. It's just, this is just obviously my opinion yeah. you don't you can take it with a grain of salt if you want so uh yeah but anyway so i felt demographics was definitely something important to talk about in afghanistan because it's, it's really at the source of a lot of conflict oh yeah oh yeah well it, and like unlike um 
in like Bosnia where it's a bunch of different just a bunch of different eth- well it is a bunch of different ethnic groups but they also kind of function in a tribal yeah t- nomadic kind of way and unlike Mongolia it's not ethnically homogenous yeah like not in Mongolia <laughs> so as of 2020 the population is 38 million nine hundred twenty eight thousand three hundred and forty six are male, while 48.68% are female. And 41.8% of the population are under the age of 14. Uh, The majority of the population speaks a language known as Dari, which is is also referred to as Afghan Persian. And a fairly significant amount of people speak Pashto, 99.7% 99.7% of the country practices Islam, with around 65 to 70% practicing Sunni and 27 to 35% practicing Shia. Now, for ethnic groups, this is where it gets very divided. 42% are Pashtun, 27% are Tajik, 29% are Hazara, 9% are Uzbek, 4% are Amak. 3% are Turkmen, 2% are Baloch, and 4% are others, so a mix of Arab, Para, Parimi, or Pamiri, sorry, etc. So it's a very small and diverse country. Geographically, very mountainous, very dry, uh, not much arable land, hence why a fair bit of the population still nomadic. I mean that, and also because a lot of the infrastructure is now destroyed. Yeah. And and it really, in a lot of ways, is like never... The society itself didn't really develop because it was constantly stunted by people invading them, right? Like, yeah. Like, they, they obviously have an evolved... Cult, like, they, their culture and everything is quite strong, but, like, in a lot of ways, it's hard to to move on and modernize when you're constantly just being invaded by people. Yeah, that, and it's also <laughs> very isolated. I and mean, that it's, too, yeah. For some, for a country that was once sandwiched between the Soviet Union and India, yeah. I mean, it's still sandwiched between, in like those places, but yeah, uh, but it was still very isolated. It's very mountainy, yeah, mountainous and dry, as I said, deserty mm-hmm. in certain areas, which. <laughs> Interestingly enough, makes it a perfect hiding place for known terrorists. Yeah. But I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> so the main important thing to talk about before we get into the whole thing is Afghanistan was invaded by the British. They tried, didn't really succeed. So during the 19th century, a political and diplomatic rivalry between the British and Russian empires known as the Great Game began. The rivalry stemmed from the desire for control or influence over Afghanistan and the neighboring countries in Central and South Asia. Russia became concerned over the British expanding their commercial and military dominance inland Asia, while the British were suspicious of Russian plans to add India to its empire. India was considered, quote, the jewel of the crown, unquote, and it was due to India's mass amount of spices, jewels, and population. I'm pretty sure it had the largest population of the British Empire. I think it did because it, the British never occupied like all of China. No, they so, occupied 
lot of it. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, like population wise, because I mean the population was pretty like dense. The po- yeah, the population. Where they occupied, but yeah. I don't think it was as much as India because they had all of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's probably the richest in minerals and people. And minerals, you could argue with Canada. Yeah, you could argue, but I mean, it yeah, depends. To put it in perspective, all of the crown, all of the jewels that are on the crown jewels are from India. I'm pretty sure. I probably someone can correct me in the comments. Probably. <laughs> but, India was like the country that Queen Victoria wanted the most, so mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons. Yeah, Afghanistan lay directly between the Russian and British borders. Afghanistan had become isolated due to the expansion of the Russian and British empires. However, the country began to establish its own national identity at this time, united by their isolation and practice of Islam. The resulting Durrani Empire lasted between 1747 and 1823 until it was overthrown and replaced by the Emirate of Afghanistan. Ahmad Shah Durrani, the first Shah of the empire, is still regarded, regarded as the father of the modern country of Afghanistan. The first Anglo-Afghan War began in July 1839 when the East India Company, or EIC, who actually controlled India at the time, because <laughs> that's how powerful companies could get. Oh, yeah. Well, the Dutch West Indies kind of e- like... Yep. They all... Yeah. They intervened on behalf of the deposed Shah, Shah Shuja. That's hard to say, like, one after another. Yeah. Against Dost Mohammed. The EIC decisively captured Kedah and Kandahar, forcing Dost and his army to flee. Shuja was reinstalled as the Shah. Dost regrouped his forces and launched attacks in 1840. The British at this point had only left 6,000 troops in the country and were rushed to get reinforcements in. The British captured Dost and brought him back to India, basically leaving his group leaderless for a fair amount of time. This led to unrest in the emirate, and Dost's son, Muhammad Akbar, rallied support and launched a series of attacks between summer and autumn 1841. The 16,500 British and Indian troops eventually agreed to withdraw, and while doing so, were ambushed in the mountains near Gandamak village. Nearly the entire force was wiped out, and the leader of the brigade, Major General William Elphinstone, was captured, and he later died in a captivity. Obviously enraged, and in retaliation, the British and EIC sent 13,000 troops to the capital of Kabul as a means of revenge against the Afghans, killing nearly a thousand. The war ultimately resulted in an Afghan victory, and the British and EIC withdrew. That's obviously a very quick rundown of it because, I mean, we don't have time. (laughs) The Second Anglo-Afghan War began in 1878. This resulted when the Russians sent a diplomatic envoy to Afghanistan and the latter refused to accept the British envoy. The British sent one anyway and they were stopped at the ancient Khyber Pass and ordered to turn back by the Afghans. In the first phase, the British easily defeated the Afghan army at Ali Masjid and Piwar Kotal, which left Kabul basically without any defenders as all of the defenders were either killed or captured or fled. 
Sher Ali Khan attempted to get Russian assistance, but instead the Russians urged Sher Ali to seek surrender terms with the British. Before any agreement could happen, Sher Ali died on February 21st, 1879, leaving his son Muhammad Yaqib Khan in charge. He signed the Treaty of Gandamak in May 1879, which relinquished Afghan foreign policy to the British, as well as ceded the Northwest Frontier Province and Quetta to the British. The peace lasted until September 3, 1879, when an uprising in Kabul killed the British representatives Louis Kavanari and his staff. British troops once again moved in and eventually defeated the uprising at the Battle of Kandahar on September 1, 1880. Amir Abdur Rahman Khan was installed by the British, and it was agreed the British were allowed to keep their captured territories while Afghanistan were to remain an independent buffer state between the British Raj and Russia as a British protectorate. And if you look at a map of Afghanistan and you see that the kind of panhandle that just randomly goes from one side to the other, and connects with China. That's where that panhandle was so that there was no border between Russia and India. So that buffer state would be there. Also, this the second Anglo-Afghan war was the first time camel army uniforms were used when the British used khaki uniforms to camouflage with the like dirty or like the deserty dirt background of the of Afghanistan. In 1885, a diplomatic crisis between Russia and Britain began again. This was during the Russian conquest of Central Asia when the Russians captured a fort in Panjde, which was an Afghan border fort. In response, the British made preparations to go to war. However, the situation was resolved diplomatically. The resulting territory annexed remains Afghanistan's northern defined border with Turkmenistan. The Afghans were angered by the lack of British intervention, and this decreased popularity for the British in the country. Now, this is something I just found out and was not aware of. There was a third Anglo-Afghan war Damn in 1919. Man. Jesus. The so British the, just didn't. They just relentless. Yeah, this was, uh, this was different. But Still. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the third and final Anglo-Afghan war began when Afghanistan invaded British India on May 6, 1919. Following the death of Amir Abdur Rahman Khan in 1901, his successors constantly aimed for greater autonomy for Afghanistan. Remember, they did not control their foreign policy still. The British did. Yeah. The country even signed agreements with the Ottoman Empire during the First World War while remaining neutral. The decision to invade India stemmed from internal, internal turmoil in Afghanistan following a succession dispute. When King Habibullah was assassinated on February 19th, his brother claimed the throne, while Habibullah's third son, Amanullah, declared himself the true successor. Amanullah became popular for his claim to believe in democratic ideals, promise of government reforms, and a crackdown on forced labor, tyranny, and oppression. He also expressed belief in leaving the Gandamark Treaty. While the Afghans made little success militarily, they achieved a massive diplomatic victory as a result of the war. It ended the British protectorate status and the country once again had authority over its foreign affairs and basically become an independent country. The Soviet Union was also the first country to recognize an independent, the independence of Afghanistan after the war. We're gonna skip 
quite a bit because they didn't Afghanistan didn't really do much during the interwar periods or World War One or World War Two. I mean, that's significant to this. Yeah. So we're gonna jump all the way ahead to <laughs> Soviet, well, Soviet Russia, really. Uh, and I'm gonna talk a little bit about the leader of Soviet Union during this time, Leonid Brezhnev. Uh, Brezhnev was born in 1906 in Yekaterinoslav Governate, Russian Empire, which is now modern-day Kamyanska, Ukraine. So his ethnicity was listed as Ukrainian in some documents, including his passport, but Russian in others. So, you know. He had the privilege, I guess, of rolling in both worlds, but he lived a pretty, I don't know, your average uh, average background in a way. His parents were, uh, were general laborers and workers. He received a technical education and worked in engineers, or sorry, worked as an engineer in the iron and steel industries of eastern Ukraine. He joined the Communist Party Youth Organization, Komsomol, in 1923, and then the actual party itself in 1929, so... His rise, in a way, is kind of the same as most of these people. You, you grow up with a fairly working-class family. You get a decent working-class job. If you go to school and abide by the law and do, do well, you'll move up in the world. You'll go far, kid. Um, <laughs> Brezhnev did his mandatory military service between 1935 and 1936, and after taking courses at a tank school, he became a political commissar in a tank factory. So the reason I'm kind of going through his background is, one, because... I don't think people really know that much about Leonid Brezhnev. But two, in a way, like, the fact that he... Some of his background is really, like, it highlights kind of who he became as a politician in the end. I mean, he was a lifelong a lifelong politician in a way because becoming a political commissar basically means, like, you're part of the military, but you rat on everybody for the government. <laughs> <laughs> you, work for, you work for the party. He rose through the ranks, and he survived Stalin's purges in the late 30s, so that meant that advancing was easy, because a lot of the middle and senior ranks of the party were, you know, dead. So those jobs were widely available, and he rose quickly. He was just, you know, above... He wasn't incompetent, so you could, you could go far. He was immediately drafted during World War II, and worked to evacuate his area's industries to the Eastern Soviet Union, so he was still in the Ukraine before uh, his city fell on August 29th, and he was assigned as a political commissar, again, and in October made deputy of political administration for the Southern Front with the rank of brigade, brigade commissar, or colonel, because again, political officers have a different ranking system. Uh, in 1942, when the German, Germans occupied Ukraine, Brezhnev was sent to the Caucasus as a deputy, the Caucasus is in, this, is in Southern Russia, by the way, was sent to the Caucasus as a deputy head of political administration of the Trans-Caucasian Front. At the end of the war in Europe, Brezhnev was chief political commissar of the 4th Ukrainian Front, which entered Prague in May 1945 after the German surrender. Along the way, he had served with Nikita Khrushchev, but it's also important to note that him and Khrushchev had been tight for a little bit. Uh, Khrushchev, <laughs> Khrushchev supported Brezhnev's career uh, even before the war. Um, Brezhnev temporarily left the army after the war with the rank of major general in 1946, though he had Spent the entire war as a political commissar rather than an actual military commander. So it's confusing and weird, but lifelong, you know, career politician right here. In 1950, he became a deputy of the Supreme Soviet of the Soviet Union, the highest legislative body in the Soviet Union. Later in the year, he was appointed party first secretary of the Communist Party of Moldova and the Moldavi Moldovi or Moldavian Soviet, Soviet Socialist Republic, or Moldavian SSR. 
They really liked to jam a lot of words into names. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in 1952, Brezhnev had a meeting with Stalin, and Stalin promoted him to the Communist Party's Central Committee as a candidate of the Presidium, which is formerly the Politburo. Changed names. <laughs> but unfortunately for Leo, Stalin died in 1953, and after everything was reorganized, Brezhnev was demoted to first deputy head of the political directorate of the Army and Navy, so... He got real close to having power, and then his buddy died, and now he's fighting his way back up. When Stalin died, there was a power struggle, which is not terribly surprising given how much power he had, and no succession plan. Um, Go see this film, Death of Stalin, because it explains it actually really well. It does. <laughs> it's pretty funny. I finally watched it, by the way. So there was a power struggle between, uh, and the two major players were Nikita Khrushchev and Georgi Milenkov. Khrushchev succeeded Stalin as general secretary, while Milenkov succeeded Stalin as chairman of the Council of Ministers. So they split the job, kinda. Khrushchev had the most power, but Milenkov still had his, his foot in the door. Brezhnev sided with Khrushchev against Milenkov for several years. In 1955, Brezhnev was made general secretary of the Communist Party of the Kazakh Soviet Socialist Republic. And on the surface, his mission was to make the new lands agriculturally productive, because the Soviet Union was struggling with that. In particular, uh, they'd had a lot of food, food shortages. But in reality, he was actually in Kazakhstan to uh, help develop the Soviet missile and nuclear arms program, which included building the Baikonur Cosmodrome, which we talked about in our moon landing episode. The initially successful agricultural plan soon became not terribly successful and failed to solve any of the sh food shortages that were plaguing the Soviet Union. So. Brezhnev was then recalled to Moscow because the harvest in the following year was going to be really bad and it would have hurt Brezhnev, so he got moved back to Moscow preemptively to save his career. <laughs> Basically. He had friends. In 1956, he, when he returned to Moscow, he, made a candidate or he was made a candidate member of the Politburo, assigned in control of the defense industry space program, which included the Baikonur Cosmodrome, heavy industry, and capital construction. He was now very much a member of Khrushchev's entourage, and in 1957, he backed Khrushchev in his struggle with Malenkov's Stalinist Olgard in the par party leadership. See, the major ideological difference here was that Khrushchev wanted to, well, de-Stalinize and lift some of the really harsh rules and strict regulations and things that Stalin had preached, and Malenkov wanted to keep that in place, so you see where there's going to be a clash. But Brezhnev sided with Khrushchev, and uh, following their defeat of the Stalinists, he became a full member of the Politburo, which is really the place you want to be if you want to be in power in Russia. Uh, and he became the second secretary of the Central Committee in 1959, and in May 1960 was promoted to the post of chairman of the Presidium of the Soviet Union, making him the nominal head of state, though the real power still resided with Khrushchev as first secretary of the Soviet Communist Party and premier. One day we'll explain how all that works. <laughs> Today is not that day. So Khrushchev was motoring along as the leader of the Soviet Union and was pretty safe until 1962. You know, they launched some rockets. It was a good time. Uh, <laughs> but as he aged, he also became a little bit more erratic and his performance undermined the confidence of his fellow leaders. They were a little worried about him. They were a little worried he was going off his rocker. So at the same time, the economy was also starting to slip, which really put further pressure on his leadership. Brezhnev, he remained outward, outwardly loyal, but in 1963, he became part of a plot to remove him from power. So he's a, he's a schemer, kind of. But he, yeah, he, he possibly played a leading role. 
That same year, he succeeded Frol Kozlov, another Khrushchev protege, as secretary of the Central Committee, which positioned him as Khrushchev's likely successor. And then in 1964, Khrushchev made him second, second secretary, which is literally the deputy party leader. So, like, he was literally next in line to become the leader. So Khrushchev kind of contributed to this. He put Brezhnev in place. But it's smart of Brezhnev, you know, outwardly loyal. Hey, we're still pals. Promote me. Anyway, Khrushchev had been away on a trip to Scandinavia and Czechoslovakia in October 1964 and very much aware of this plot against him, clearly because he promoted Brezhnev, and went on a holiday in the Black Sea. His presidium officers had congratulated him on his work in office thus far and, you know, being his yes man. But a top Soviet diplomat named Anastas Mikoyan visited him and hinted that he shouldn't be too complacent. <laughs> it's kind of ominous. The head of the KGB at the time, Vladimir Samoshasny, was the head, or yeah, was also a crucial part of this conspiracy because it was literally his duty to inform Khrushchev of any such plots. So having him on board was pretty key. Nikolai Ignatov had fired, had been fired by Khrushchev previously, and he discreetly went about recruiting several Central Committee members. So after a few false starts, fellow conspirator Mikhail Suslov, or Suslov, sorry, phoned Khrushchev and requested that he return to Moscow to discuss the state of Soviet agriculture. But Khrushchev started to understand what was happening. <laughs> and, uh, you know, didn't. But he said to Mikoyan, who was there with him still, that, quote, if it is me who is the question, I will not make a fight of it. So he, he was smart. A minority headed by Mikoyan wanted to remove Khrushchev from the office of first secretary, but retain, retain him as the chairman of the Council of Ministers. The majority, which was headed by Brezhnev, wanted to remove him from active politics altogether. Brezhnev and Nikolai Pogorny appealed to the Central Committee, blaming the economic failures of the country on Khrushchev, which is a pretty smart move. And this influenced Brezhnev's ally, or, yeah, and the Politburo members who were influenced by Brezhnev's allies voted to remove Khrushchev from office in October 14th, thus securing Brezhnev's path to power. Some of the members who demoted got rid of Khrushchev wanted to also punish him beyond just removing him from office. But Brezhnev, who was, you know, secure in his role, just didn't feel any reason to punish him more. He didn't, he wasn't worried about losing his seat to anybody else. And he was appointed to first secretary the same day. So they did, they moved quickly. But truthfully in the party, people for the most part viewed him as someone who would just kind of keep the seat warm until someone better came along. Alexei Kozygin was appointed head of the government and Mikoyan was retained as head of state. Brezhnev and his companions, actually, interesting thing about Mikoyan, he remained in top Soviet office the entirety of the Soviet Union. Like, basically from Stalin forward. Really? Yeah. It's extremely rare and kind of weird, but yeah, he actually managed to stay like a top advisor in the Soviet government for like the whole time. He outlasted all of these guys. Wow. In a lot of ways. <clears throat> Crazy thing. Uh, just weird in a situation, you know, in a government, like a situation like that, you'd think that, you know, at some point someone would send your ass to Siberia. He probably lasted that long because he didn't become premier. <laughs> probably. <laughs> he just helps get rid of other premiers. Yeah. <laughs> He's pretty savvy, I think. Clearly. Maybe he was running things the whole time. No. Probably was, who knows. Yeah, this is a bit of a deep dive, but anyway, um, I thought that was interesting. Brezhnev and his companions supported the general party line taken after Stalin's death, but 
felt that Khrushchev's reforms had removed much of the Soviet Union's stability. So one reason for Khrushchev's being ousted was that he continually overruled other party members and was, according to his plotters, in contempt of the party's collective ideals. So, you know, he wanted to loosen things up a little bit and they didn't want to. And also, I guess, just acted like a crazy person. But when Khrushchev left the public spotlight, there was no real commotion, as most Soviet citizens had anticipated a period of stabilization, steady development of Soviet society, and continuing economic growth ahead. They really didn't feel much reason for alarm. Brezhnev consolidated his power, like a smart man, and uh, he knew how the Soviet structure worked. I mean, he was a political officer, so that lifetime of knowing what's going on is really useful here. He was a team player, but he never acted rashly or harshly like Khrushchev, so... He, he would do his own thing, but he would also kind of keep everyone in line. He knew, he, knew how to work, he knew how to work a crowd, so to speak, which is how he stayed in power for so long. So he, uh, he lasts until the 80s. He's, he's in power a long time. I think the longest of yep. all of them. He, I checked. He is okay. the longest. Yeah. yeah, yeah, longest of all of them. Um, his stabilization policy included ending the liberalizing reforms of Khrushchev and clamping down on cultural freedom because, you know, as you do. As one does. Dictator's going to dictate. Uh, during the Khrushchev years, Brezhnev had supported the leaders' denunciations of Stalin's arbitrary rule, the rehabilitation of many victims of the purges, and the cautious liberalization of Soviet intellectual, cultural, intellectual and cultural policy. However, as soon as he became leader, he decided not to do any of that anymore, and started to reverse this reform process and developed an increasingly totalitarian and regressive attitude. Again. Dictator going to dictate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's what you want. It's definitely not what you want. In 1966, there was a show trial of two writers, which was the first since Stalin, and it marked the reversion to the repressive cultural policies that had existed. The KGB at the time was headed by Yuri Andropov, who would also later become premier, and it regained some of the powers it had enjoyed under Stalin. So the KGB had been kind of stripped of a lot of its power under Khrushchev, um, but Andropov was pretty stoked to get a lot of that back in, when uh, Brezhnev took over. There was no return to the purges of the 1930s, fortunately, for the people of the Soviet Union. And Stalin's legacy remained largely discredited among the Soviet intelligentsia as a result of those purges. But things were still not great. By the mid-1970s, there was an estimated 10,000 political and religious prisoners across the Soviet Union, living in grievous conditions and suffering from mal malnutrition. Not to mention all of the other actual prisoners dying under the same conditions, <laughs> generally for not always crimes they actually committed, but weren't necessarily political prisoners. Many of the prisoners, actually, who, these political and religious prisoners, they were considered mentally unfit and were hospitalized in mental asylums across the Soviet Union, which I can't imagine was a good time. Their prison, mental hospital and Soviet Union are not two words. They just don't seem like words together. I want to, yeah. yeah. Under Brezhnev, the KGB succeeded in infiltrating most, or if not all, anti-government organizations and ensured that there was little to no opposition against him or his power base. <laughs> he was really good at this. <laughs> He did refrain from the all-out violence seen under Stalin, so, you know, he wasn't, like, the worst, <laughs> I guess, in that way. So, agriculture, it's, it's actually something you'll kind of notice between... It's a big problem for the Soviet Union, as it kind of is for Afghanistan in lots of ways, with Afghanistan's climate and just, like, terrain makes it difficult, but agricultural output and issues are really large in the politics of these two countries, especially, like, in this war. Like, they kind of matter. So the Soviet Union was going through massive food shortages and issues, and so Brezhnev wanted to increase that. And output did increase by 3% annually, and the in industry also improved during the eighth five-year plan. 
But by 1973, the era of stagnation was becoming apparent. So the era of stagnation is essentially pretty much most of Brezhnev's rule. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We've mentioned it a, few, a couple times Yeah, <laughs> so it starts sort of around the early 1970s. So his first few years, he's successful. Things are, things are humming along. It's not so bad, kind of. I feel like if this happens all the time, whenever a new leader takes over and they introduce a new plan, it usually you'll see a spike, like it works for a bit, and then it falls back to earth and evens out. And that's really what was starting to happen about now. And you can say the eras of stagnation, it's, it's both like economically, but also societally in the Soviet Union, which I'll kind of talk about in a second, but it kind of like, it, it's, it call, it's a blanket. You could honestly also like throw the, like put the war in this sense too, because it like reaches a stalemate and it's just like, stagnation and stalemate and those kinds of like bland like not moving one way or another type all of those vibes is really how you should think of all this it seems like a weird correlation because it's like oh the economy's kind of going going down start a war yeah but that's really what happens most times oh the the stock market crashed start a war the housing market crashed yeah yeah Let's start a war to distract everybody. Uh, and I mean, there's a lot of causes for this stagnation, obviously. Uh, the fact that, I mean, insert economic debate about planned economies here. <laughs> um, <laughs> but some of it also was Brezhnev's own fault. So the industrial growth rates declined during the 1970s as heavy industry and the arms industry were prioritized while Soviet consumer goods were neglected. So, uh, you know, the arms race. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, the causes of stagnation are, again, like I said, kind of debated, but ultimately, high military spending, see also the arms race, contributed pretty famously. Didn't we also say kind of the space race? Well, arms race and space race, like that's really okay, what's all happening yeah, in here. Because in the Soviet Union, and I mean in the United States, I think, which for sure in the Soviet Union, uh, space funding was all just military spending. Yeah. And I think it is in the United States, too, for the most part. Uh, I don't know if it's the same budget. I don't know budget. if it is now, but... It, at one point, it was. Yeah, definitely. And so... Well, I mean, there's a reason why all those astronauts like that we talked about were all like in the Air Force and Navy. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, still are, for the most part. For the most part, yeah. Uh, some of it's just because it's the most, like, the closest type of training you could possibly have to space, <laughs> I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was involved in the construction of the Baikonur Cosmodrome. So really, when I say high military spending, I also mean on space too. Like this is the nuclear program, the space program, yeah, everything. You, you made it. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. They spent a lot of money on this kind of shit and not on consumer goods. And that's really the point. <laughs> um, but Brezhnev was also a really conservative leader and he failed to enforce any kind of reform to try and combat economic stagnation. So he just assumed that what had worked would always work. And even though it wasn't really working, like, oh, well, <laughs> we'll keep doing it, <laughs> I guess. Brezhnev was really famous also for waffling really hard when it was a difficult decision and when it was a big decision. He was really indecisive. And so, again, that whole idea of like a stalemate and being kind of stuck is like, really, it's all Brezhnev vibe. Like, like. <laughs> It's a mood for him. <laughs> St- stagnation is a mood. You like a stagnation today. Yeah. Sorry. He just, uh, yeah. Like, it was pretty famous. So, the one thing, though, which is sort of weird, I mean, it depends how you consider standard of living. From an economic standpoint, the standard of living for the average citizen generally improved in the Soviet Union under Brezhnev, even once economic growth started to stall. 
Because Brezhnev decided that, actually kind of smartly, I'll give him a little credit, I guess, that instead of focusing solely on the economy, he also tried to improve the standard of living by extending social benefits and other things, which led to a very minor, but an increase in public support. He wasn't super loved. Um, I don't think he was ever super popular. He just managed to stay in power, like because he's just really smart at gaming the system. He knows how it should, how these things work. His motivation, though, for this, at this point, though, was because the standard of living in Russia, or in the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic, or the RSFSR, or Russia, <laughs> had fallen behind that of both Georgia and Estonia under Brezhnev, which is humiliating. Wow. Yeah. So the Russian people were feeling pretty convinced the Soviet government was hurting the Russian people pretty actively, and they were not loving that. And since they're the biggest population of the republics, <laughs> should probably fix that. <laughs> As with other things, like I said, society became also very static under Brezhnev. So how things worked for employment was the government often moved workers from one job to another. So many government industries, such as factories, mines, and offices, they were generally staffed by undisciplined personnel who really didn't care about what they were doing, <laughs> which is not what you want. Yeah. Um, the government lacked any kind of countermeasure because to, to deal with it because uh, there was really not any significant unemployment in the country and so you can't just threaten like no the job strike. yeah well you can't just threaten that person to be like go back to work or I'll fire you because it's like there's no one to take that job so we kind of need you right yeah okay um, but the workers actually had a lot more power than in that sense a lot of leeway yeah so, I mean, and like, every, like literally everyone had a job for the most part. There was obviously some, some unemployment, but we'll never really know how much in a lot of ways because it was never going to be reported. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we, I'm sure you could find numbers when you, if you look through like confidential documents, but it's definitely still honestly not a thing that's talked about that much. But I mean, even ultimately all of the prisoners had jobs that were working for the Soviet Union. So it's not a lot of unemployment. But despite Brezhnev's efforts i'm not going to say his best efforts but his efforts uh in some areas did improve the majority of the civilian services and living conditions sort of did also fall rapidly they kind of went up and then back down again everything became stagnant so diseases rose to a decay rose due to a decaying healthcare system living spaces remained really small by first world standards with the average soviet person living on 13.4 square meters which is nothing uh thousands of moscow inhabitants became homeless as a result of lots of policies. It was never reported on, obviously. Be bad propaganda. <laughs> but in some cases, and in some cases in the 1970s, uh, rationing of staple food products also returned to some cities, especially uh, Sverdlovsk was referenced as being one of the first. So it was not a great situation. And some of that had a lot to do with like, and it, it was just like, it was systemic, like all the way down. It was ultimately at this point that it's just like, this whole thing is rotten. Social society was fairly rigid <clears throat> and also remained static. So during the Stalin era, there was actually like a way for upward movement. So the common laborer could expect promotions to better jobs if they, you know, studied, obeyed Soviet authorities that, you know, like I kind of talked about with Brezhnev's past, you know, you, you can rise up through the ranks if you are a good soldier, basically. Still based on merit? Yeah, but like if you work hard and, you know, like you... By their standards, obviously. Yeah. So production quotas, et cetera, et cetera. But, and you, you know, you study, you do good. In a way, it's kind of the whole like American dream thing of like work hard and play, you know. But anyway, so that was a thing for a long time under Stalin. There was a way up through the system. But under Brezhnev, that was very much not a thing because 
uh, nepotism, corruption, that kind of stuff was really rampant. And people who held attractive positions held on to them for as long as they physically could. And mere incompetence was really not a good enough reason to dismiss anybody. So people stayed in jobs that they should not have had <laughs> for a really long time. And so people kind of just got stuck. And so social society, I mean, it's really how, in a lot of ways, like, the stagnation is also probably what kept Brezhnev in his job so long. Yeah. <laughs> like, no one was, every, it's like when, when everyone's kind of stuck, no one's afraid to, like, everyone's a little bit afraid to do anything and rock the boat. And especially a lot of people under him who are probably living pretty large. No, they were living quite large. <laughs> they were, you know, it's a lot of corruption. So, uh, yeah, that's more or less the Soviet Union under Brezhnev. But the, their foreign policy, I mean, isn't, honestly terribly important in this case except for one thing which is known as the Brezhnev doctrine because that's really how these two countries get tied together in lots of ways beyond their other imperial... the Soviets and the Afghans yeah but beyond yeah. beyond imperial <clears throat> pasts this is this is how they get tied together a little bit here different kind of imperialism in a yeah they're way. still an imperial past but different kind of imperialism <laughs> well different culprit I guess I don't know. anyway well no I meant like it's a diff completely different kind of imperialism yeah, altogether. It, it's like, oh, we don't want to directly control you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We just want to pull your strings. We don't want to actually <laughs> physically occupy you yeah, either. This is post this is Cold War imperialism. Yeah. That's what that's basically I just explained Cold War <laughs> Yeah. We imperialism. We just we just want some access to all your policy. We just we don't want to do everything. We're gonna take all your shit. Yeah. For sure. Anyway, the version of doctrine. <laughs> Sorry. We're probably going to get derailed a lot this episode, and that's okay. I'm in a good mood. Uh, the Brezhnev Doctrine was a Soviet foreign policy that proclaimed any threat to a socialist or any threat to socialist rule in any state of the Soviet bloc in Central and Eastern Europe was a threat to them all, and therefore justified the intervention of fellow socialist states. You may recognize this type of policy sort of because it's really what NATO has. If attack on one NATO country means you're attacking them all, it's, it's really how all allied like. All of these types of agreements work. Yeah, all alliances tend. To, yeah. yeah, I mean that's how World War One came about. That's <laughs> literally how it started. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, these types of alliances have gotten us into trouble before, <laughs> as a society. They've also helped, but trouble has happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so the policy was first and most clearly outlined by Sergei Kovalev in a September 1968 Pravda article, which was the state newspaper, but. Brezhnev also then re actually re like reiterated what he wrote later in a speech at the 5th Congress of the Polish United Workers' Party on November 13, 1968, where he said, quote, When forces that are ho hostile to socialism try to turn the development of some socialist country towards capitalism, it becomes not only a problem of the country concerned, but a common problem and concern of all socialist countries. That sounds almost verbatim with NATO's. Yeah. Like, it's scary. A little bit. So the doctrine was retroactively announced to justify the invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968, which had ended Prague Spring, and also to retroactively justify other interventions such as invading Hungary in 1956. Of course. Yeah, you know. Yeah, this new thing I invented covers all that. It's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> just gaslighting everyone. We're just telling you about it now. She's gaslighting everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, really good at that. The invasions and, well, interventions... We're meant to be quote unquote. We're meant to be a deterrent and to put an end to the liberalization efforts and uprisings that had the potential to compromise Soviet hegemony inside the Eastern Bloc. 
So in a way, it really is like an intervention. Like, hey, we need to talk. We uh, we don't want you to do these things because, yeah. Anyway, the Soviets considered the Eastern Bloc and this whole, well, they considered Soviet hegemony inside of the Eastern Bloc very essential as the it was a defensive buffer in case of hostilities with NATO. So, you know, we'll sacrifice all of the people between us and the NATO countries first. In practice, though, the policy meant that only limited independence of the satellite states' communist parties was allowed and that no socialist country would be allowed to compromise the cohesiveness of the Eastern Bloc in any way. So the policy ultimately kind of just, like, left... It, it, it basically, like, solidified Soviet influence in these countries, and so literally so it literally is cold war imperialism of like yeah we we're gonna control you to some extent here so in this way you can and if you tried to leave there'd be like retaliation and things like that so think of the warsaw pact as hotel california you can never leave <laughs> that's a good one yeah yeah you can never leave you're, you're there forever welcome to the hotel common forum <laughs> <laughs> please leave that in <laughs> that's amazing Oh, that's great. <laughs> Love it. Um, anywho. We're already almost at an hour. Fuck. <laughs> it's going to be a long one. So obviously, because the Soviets came up with the wording, it was implicit that the leadership of the Soviet Union gets to define what is also considered socialism and what is not. So when he specifies, you know, moving towards capitalism, he not only gets to just determine what socialism is, but also what capitalism is. And so... Like, if they think that anything you're doing is just a little capitalistic, even if it's probably not, <laughs> uh, probably didn't need all of this background information. Um, I think it's important to, like, bring up Brezhnev because well, we're not, like, really we not going to really talk about him. We're not really going to talk about the Soviet Union in general, so, like, it's important to talk about it in these contexts. So shortly after the doctrine was announced, numerous treaties were then signed to reassert these points and ensure interstate cooperation. So now that we've said it, we want it in writing. <laughs> <laughs> Sign here, please. <laughs> Um, ultimately, the terms of the doctrine were left pretty broad, which was intentional, as it allowed the most power and discretion for the USSR. So, you know, you got to be in a key negotiating position. The Brezhnev Doctrine stayed in place until Gorbachev came along in the 1980s and decided to not intervene in the Velvet... or in... Yeah, during in the... Anything. Re- during anything, and so that's really <laughs> the... That thus ends the Brezhnev Doctrine. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's... That's Leo. Leo Brezhnev. I think Brezhnev is, like, not solely responsible for the end of the Soviet Union, but, like, very responsible. Oh, yeah. Because a lot of what sets up the end is happens during his rule, because he ruled forever. Like, he had a really... He's, he's like, the classic person who ruled too long and fucked everything up type dude. Like, yeah. you know, it's there's, there's time when you just need to not be in power. <laughs> yeah. That's why there's... The dictatorships don't work. Yeah, exactly. For this reason. Just a couple things I guess we should mention is that like during like between like the interwar periods and like first like second world war during that they were kind of trying to industrialize and yeah like move up um it was still like again isolated not like not a lot of resources really and so but I mean obviously it was under the watchful eye of the Soviet Union because I mean it was there. How I mean, do you the, not be? There's a joke. It's that it's a stand, so of course the Soviets are gonna look yeah. at it. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, they so, wanted all of Central Asia. Yeah, exactly. 
But one and all that smoke. Yeah, but the and I mean like apparently even for like a predominantly Muslim country, it was fairly uh, moderate. Uh, I mean, most like it was fairly moderate, except for like in the rural. Yeah, like which, more in the tribal kind of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was a lot more traditional and tribal, whereas now it's definitely a lot. I don't even know. It's kind of changing now because of because like there's definitely yeah. changing attitudes because like people have been ex- exposed to a lot of other stuff. I mean, obviously there was like they got freaking invaded again, <laughs> and they're now being a- given access to like. Ah, uh, we can talk about this at the end. Yeah. Anyway. Well, it's important, though, to know sort of what happened in that whole period since we just skipped ahead. By, yeah, like, but I mean, like, they, they were kind of trying to, uh, like, trying to kind of build on its they, own identity. They'd moved, they'd moved on on their own, and they had had a policy of non-alignment for the most part. Um, oh, yeah. I don't think they, to this point. I don't think they fought in the Second World War either, but, um, I, so. I mean, they didn't, they weren't under the influence of anybody. They were just kind of trying to build themselves their up in their own identity and whatnot. Doing their own thing. All right. Uh, Mohammed Daoud Khan came to power in Afghanistan in 1973 during a coup d'etat, overthrowing the monarchy of King Zahir Shah and established the First Republic of Afghanistan. He had, supported, he had been supported by the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, the PDPA, during the coup and had established his own political party, the National Revolutionary Party. Afghanistan became a one-party state in 1977, with political opposition being suppressed, sometimes violently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's how this works now. <laughs> Members of the PDPA were given roles in the government, and in 1976, Dawood established a seven-year economic plan for the country. He started military training pro- programs with India and commenced economic developments talks with Iran, which Afghanistan and Iran have had very tenuous relations over the past, so this was a pretty big development. Um, he also turned to his oil-rich neighbors in Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and Kuwait for financial assistance, which is a smart move. They got all the money. Um, but during his presidency, uh, relations with the USSR soured, which isn't really great when you're their neighbor. Dawood <laughs> <laughs> was convinced that closer ties to the Soviet Union and their military support excuse me, would allow Afghanistan to take control of Pashtun lands in northwest Pakistan. But he was ostensibly committed to non-alignment and became uneasy over the Soviet Union's attempts to dictate Afghanistan's foreign policy and relations between the two started to deteriorate. So as much as he wanted their help to take back Pashtun lands, he also, yeah, was pretty mistrustful of the Soviets, which is valid, honestly. Uh, in 1970, or by 1978, though, um, a lot of what, the, what Dowd had set out to do had not been done at all, not even close. Uh, the, the economy had not made any real progress, and the Afghan standard of living had definitely not improved. Arguably got worse. He also garnered much criticism for his single-party constitution, because which alienated him from his political supporters. Uh, under his secular government, factionalism and rivalries developed in the people's, well, the PDPA. I'm not saying that whole thing. Um, <laughs> with the two main factions being the Parcham and Kalk groups. But as soon as 1976, they started to sort of begin a fragile agreement again. A little bit. It's not good, but they worked together a little bit. And began working towards getting rid of Dowd because they did not like him at all. Not that many people did at this point. On April 17th, 1978, a prominent member of the Parcham group, Mir Akbar Khyber, was, I probably fucked that up, but anyway, 
was murdered, and although the government issued a statement deploring the assassination, Noor Mohammed Taraki of the PDPA charged the government itself, or charged that the government itself was responsible. The, that belief was shared by much of the Kabul or Kabul intel, intelligentsia, as many PDPA leaders apparently feared that Dawood was planning to eliminate them. Bridges, you know, gotta be afraid of them. Uh, during Khyber's funeral, though. A protest against the government broke out, and shortly after that, most of the leaders of the PDPA, including Babrak Carmel, were arrested by the government. Protests at a funeral. That's a new one. Well, probably not really, but... Yeah, we haven't talked about it yet. So. Still, though. No, I mean, a protest at a funeral. It's not something you see every day. No. Uh, Hafizullah Amin was put under house arrest, which was fine for him, because it also gives, then gave him the opportunity to plot further. Others went to real prison. An uprising had been coalescing for a few years. Uh, this was not really a new thing. So Amin wanted to try and capitalize on that, that momentum. And despite not having the authority, he instructed the Calchas army officers to overthrow the government. So, I mean, I respect that flex. <laughs> <laughs> Under house arrest, don't have the authority, but hey, you should invade, you should overthrow the government. In April, a tank commander under who worked under Daoud warned uh, of intelligence suggesting that an attack on Kabul in the near future Specifically, though, the 27th of April. <laughs> I like that he was just real specific. <laughs> and on his suggestion, tanks were placed around the Arg, which was the presidential palace. On the 27th, the tanks turned their guns on the palace. The tank commander, surprise, surprise, had defected to the Calc before he had made his request. According to a few eyewitnesses, the first signs on the 27th that something was going down was around noon, but reports of a tank column headed towards the city. Smoke of unknown origin was near the defense ministry. <laughs> And armed men, some in military uniforms, were guarding the Ariana Circle, which is a major intersection. So, those are some signs that things are not normal. The first shots heard were near the Ministry of the Interior in the new city, Shari Now, section of Kabul, where a company of policemen apparently confronted an advancing tank column. Not a good idea. It's not going to end well for you. No. Fighting then spread to other areas of Kabul, and later in the afternoon, fighter jets Sukhoi Su-7s came in low and fired rockets at the National Palace in the center of the city. By that evening, an announcement was broadcast on the government-owned radio Afghanistan that the Kelk had, were overthrowing the Daoud government. The use of the word kai, er, cake and its association with communists in Afghanistan made it very clear that the PDPA was leading the coup, and also that the rebels had captured the radio station because they were, you know, broadcasting. Aerial attacks intensified at midnight as six more SU-7s made repeated rocket attacks against the, palace, against the palace, lighting up the city. On April 28th, the people of Kabul woke to a relatively quiet scene. Some gunfire could be heard off in the distance in the southern side of the city, but for the most part, pretty quiet and normal. However, as they ventured out for the day, they learned that the rebels had completely taken over the city and President Daoud and his brother had been killed early that morning. A group of soldiers had surrounded the heavily armed or the heavily damaged palace and demanded their surrender. Instead, Dowd and his brother charged out of the palace with pistols and were immediately mowed down. What? That's a very um, Bolivian army ending. Yeah. If, if, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, the end of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, they rush out with pistols charging the Bolivian army. Yeah. Doesn't, yeah, well, it didn't end well for these two. The PDPA succeeded the Dawood government with a new regime under the leadership of Nur Muhammad Taraki of the Kelk faction. Sorry. They basically established the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan now. So the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan was established. It was a unitary Marxist-Leninist one-party socialist republic, which is a mouthful. 
what shocked me the most about learning about this country is it practiced state atheism from 1978 until 1987. <laughs> how they managed to do that or how they thought they could manage to do that in Afghanistan, I have no idea. And I'm saying this when, when you find out that the 99.7% of the country is practices Islam. Yeah. And it was officially established on April 30th, 1978. Needless to say, political liberties were restricted with the government suppressing political opposition, often pretty harshly. Women's rights, however, improved during this time. A reform of the educational system allowed women and girls to enroll in school and in literacy programs, I believe, for the first time in Afghanistan's history. Pissed off a lot of people. It did. Yeah. This, in turn, sparked anger in the traditional mullahs in the rural communities. Mullahs are like kind of uh, tribal leaders, I believe. Yeah. It's, but it's like, it's a weird, I was reading about it and it kind of like, it translates to like vicar and like kind of like warlord as well. Like it's yeah, got like, like a loose um, translation and it's not like, there's a lot of disputes as to how much of like actual religious credibility, I guess they have. I don't know how else to put that. Uh, like they're, they're kind of like the elders. Yeah. Like yeah. they're not priests, but they're not. Yeah, I mean, they use religious terms because... Yeah, it's kind of what I understood. Yeah, because like tradition, their tradition is basically based off of... A lot of it is based off of Islam, so... Yeah, yeah, but they're not official, like, clergy, essentially. No, they're not, but yeah. they're kind of... But they get treated... treated they have the same such. kind of esteem as clergy, but aren't technically yeah, so clergy. Yeah, not, they're not imams or anything yeah. like that, but they're treated pretty well, respectfully, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, of course, they were pissed off. <laughs> and it was reported women had to go to school... Quote, with a book in one hand and a gun in the other, end quote. In Not case, much has changed in no, Afghanistan, though, to be honest. During the 1980s, nearly half of those enrolled in Kabul University were women. By the end of the decade, 60% of the professors who taught at Kabul University were women, and 40% of the country's doctors were women. So this had quite a bit of success. Yeah. Amazing how yeah, educating half the population will do good things for I'll you. I'll try and find this, but there are photos of like Afghanistan at this time, uh, like Kabul and whatnot during this time, and you see women like not wearing headscarves. Yeah. In like 70s cl like clothing you'd see on, I don't know, Kent State. Like, yeah, just it's totally. crazy. It's the same. There's another one in, in Iran around this time. I'm not saying the Shah of Iran was a good guy. Yeah. I'm just saying that the Ayatollah is not any better. Yeah. And now we're banned from going to Iran. We can add that to the list if we haven't been already. Adding to the band list. <laughs> we should actually start a real band list. Yeah. The first general secretary, as Lindsay mentioned, was Nur Muhammad Taraki, who is uh, of the Calchist faction. Um, so Calchists and Parchamites, they began to clash during negotiations over the PDPA Central Committee memberships. Soon after this, the, a propaganda campaign against the Parchamites began, during which the Kalkists accused them of not having participated in the revolution, but simply jumped on the bandwagon, which is not entirely true. The, they didn't mostly participate because they weren't notified, from what my understanding is. With the Calchists taking control of the Central Committee, Parchamite leader and Deputy Secretary Carmel was exiled. 
Not long after, a coup planned by the Parchamites was uncovered, and so a purge of the Parchamites from the party began. Which is, you know, it, I guess rule number one of when you discover a coup, purge the supporters of the coup from your party. Yeah, that's a first step. If they all are from one faction, perfect. They easier. won't be. They won't be hard to, to find. A little easier, yeah. A major turning point in the, for the country came with the passage and implementation of a land reform, which limited the amount of land a family was allowed to possess. Anyone found to have exceeded the limit had the excess land seized by the government with no compensation provided. By mid-1979, 665,000 hectares had been repositioned, and it was claimed only 4% of the population had suffered negative consequences as a result. In reality, the reform resulted in a decrease in agricultural production and caused discontent amongst the Afghan people. As a result, Tariki halted further land redistribution for the foreseeable future, which turned out to be forever. Correct me if I'm wrong. Taking away viable agricultural lands does not is not a good idea, would you say? Well, usually land distribution doesn't end well for a lot of looters. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no. it's weird because I think in a lot of I mean in a lot of cases it is really in a I don't want to say the right answer, but like it has some merit, but in practice. <laughs> <laughs> Every single time it seems to have been practiced, it has not been done. It's not gone well. No. no I mean... I, and some of it is by the people who did it, but also some of it is just like, obviously people who own land aren't going to want to give that up. Well, like, it's like here in Afghanistan, it's like we're taking your land and we're not giving you anything for it. I mean, obviously, I'd be pretty pissed too if I was getting my land taken away. Well, yeah, it's valid. Although a lot of shit has changed. Yeah. I mean, look, there's discontent amongst landowners. There's discontent amongst Everyone religious was leaders. Unhappy. Yeah, like, like religious leaders. Pretty across the board I unhappy. Think, I think it's fair to say women were probably generally pretty happy. Yeah, they were probably the only ones who were like, this ain't so bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't across yeah. the board. But I yeah. mean, the Parchamites aren't happy. No one, no one was happy for the most part. Yeah. And this is only the first, like, year yeah. <laughs> the country's around. It's pretty fucking tumultuous, though. <laughs> um, so at this point, the government isn't afraid of anyone opposing them. Because they're like, fuck you, we'll just kick your heads in. But at the same time, though, this kicking heads in approach wasn't really working. <laughs> uh, it wasn't, wasn't the best way to deal with dissent. And uh, large parts of the country just went into open rebellion. As will happen. The Parcham group, Parcham group claimed that 11,000 people were executed in total during the Amin Terrar. Terakai period in response to these revolts. Don't know how accurate that is, but seems plausible, I guess. Things got going in the northeastern part of the country in October among the Nuristani tribes of the Kunar Valley, which borders Pakistan. And the border with Pakistan is like a very contentious fighting area in every single Afghani war. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, there's that. It's um, easy to hide out there. Yeah, there's a few reasons. One, it's like strategic. Two, usually, well, it's it's like it's really hilly and like difficult. It's good to navigate if you're a guerrilla. It's not so great if you're an army. They're also culturally similar along the border. But anywho, uh, it's not important. The revolt was actually going really well, so it spread to other ethnic groups and just kept going. 
By the spring of 1979, 24 of 28 provinces had suffered outbreaks of violence, and eventually the rebellion made its way to the cities, which is really not what you want. Peasants uprising, it's like, okay, well, eh, we can fix that. Cities, less good. One such uprising, took, which was one of the more key ones, uh, took place in the town of Herat. The agrarian reforms, again, agriculture coming up here, <laughs> the agrarian reforms, which were at the heart of this violence, had taken place in Herat without opposition, surprisingly, as there was very little solidarity between the rural farmers and the big landowners who lived in the city. So they didn't trust each other enough to honestly be pissed off. Like, <laughs> or no, they didn't, trust another, they didn't trust each other enough to revolt together yeah. against that. So they're kind of like, well, all right, fuck, fine. But other reforms, as Jonah mentioned, they were carried out a lot less smoothly in this area. So repression against religious dignitaries and traditional elites, so mullahs, etc. <laughs> Definitely not something you want to do. Yeah, um, not good. Also, there was there the government's literacy program, as Jonah also mentioned, was extremely controversial <laughs> for two reasons. Uh, one, the gender mixed classes. And two, because of the communist propaganda that they were teaching people to read. So, yeah. I mean, when you're teaching people to read, you get to pick the content. Makes sense, but people guess, are, people weren't, yeah, people sorry. weren't stoked about it. Sorry, I guess I should have been mentioned literacy, the illiteracy rate in Afghanistan at this time was kind of high. Yeah, what's interesting, my random fun fact on literacy, is that communist countries, at least in this era, like all of these Eastern Bloc countries, and uh, they all prioritized literacy to like a very extreme level because like when the Soviet Union became a thing, like pretty shortly after, honestly, literacy started to rise and like up until the end, and honestly, even still actually, Russia has an extremely high literacy rate. It's like in the 90, it's like 98% or something. It's like really, really high. Uh, I mean, it's a culture of literature, but also just like they made an effort to be like, literacy is important. So like even the poorest of people knew how to read. Anywho, but very controversial in Afghanistan. <laughs> So, as much as the landowners and peasants couldn't trust each other enough to revolt over land reform, they agreed that they didn't like any of this other shit, and isolated revolts in the province had already taken place, but those uprisings had been kind of quashed, and the real uprising in Herat, after everyone decided that, okay, screw it, happened on March 15th, 1979, when insurgents gathered around mosques and following the preachings of their mullahs, marched on the city where they rendezvoused with townsmen in attacking the government buildings and any symbol of communism. The 17th Division of the Afghan army was tasked by the government to put down the rebellion, but this was a mistake on the part of the government, as there were very few Kalk or Kalkis as part of that unit, and instead they decided to mutiny and join the uprising. <laughs> the people that they were sending ultimately weren't terribly loyal, and I believe were similar ethnic groups to the people who were in this place, and so they felt a little bit more loyalty to those people. And morale in the Afghan army was pretty low, generally speaking, because one, I think we can never overestimate how much ethnic tension, like ethnic back ethnicity, I guess, that's the word I'm looking for, really influences these, these things. Like you made a good point of like Afghanistan is not ethnically homogenous and that's really, really important to every single conflict that's happened in Afghanistan and extremely important to the politics and makeup of the country. And so like, you know, a unit of soldiers could contain people who are of various ethnic backgrounds and like they may choose to go help one group rather than help the army. I mean, we've seen this in all of a few of our other episodes too. It's really common. Yeah. So this army that they sent to put down this uprising was 
pretty sympathetic to the uprising. So a small group of soldiers, officials, and Kelk activists withdrew into the city's Blue Mosque, and the insurgents held on to Herat for about a week. During that week, the city underwent a period of straight-up chaos, with rioters chanting Alu Akbar, Allah is the greatest, or God is great, searching for government supporters, Sarluchi, which are uncovered heads, so the uncovered heads of women, which meant a lack of piety, and, uh, you know, beating the shit out of them. Uh, communist officials, teachers in particular, were massacred. Uh, the bazaar was looted, and several Soviet advisors to the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan were killed, though the foreigners were spared. So any of the actual Soviets were spared, but people who were super close with them? Axed. I realize me doing the cutthroat thing is not great on an audio medium. <laughs> uh, the exact number of Soviets killed is uncertain. I guess some did die, but estimates show figures as high as 200, but according to the Soviets, only two died. Really hard to know, but gonna go closer to the Soviet number. Feels 200 feels high. <laughs> the rebellion didn't have a lot from organized leadership, so on the military end, the mutineers were led by a group of officers under Sardar Jagran and Razul Belak. Among the civilians, the situation was a lot more confused, but some local figures played a significant role. Uh, Gul Mohammed was a, a Pashtun from Gazarg, or Gazaraga, Gazarga, Gazarga. Huh. And Kumar Idozd and Shir Aga Shangar, two former convicts, uh, all led groups of insurgents. So it's kind of a clusterfuck of, of rebellion. Um, but they overran all the districts of around Herat, except for two, where the government command hosts held out and can continue to spread otherwise. So two command posts, everything else is rebels. After the initial shock of losing a major city and the mutiny of a whole division were wore off, the DRA clapped back with a vengeance. The 4th and 15th Armored Brigades were sent from uh, the famous Puli Charki prison, but due to their travel distance, Hafizullah Amin ordered Major General Saeed Mukaram, commander of the Kandahar garrison, to send an armored force that could reach Herat faster. So, a lot of people converged. Mukaram's column of 30 tanks and 300 men arrived in Herat on March 20th, waving green flags and Qurans in order to make the insurgents believe that the rebellion had spread to the whole country. A Trojan horse of sorts. The Kalk troops were allowed to pass and went on to recapture the city. Turns out it was really just that easy. <laughs> Wave a green flag. Um, after that, the government forces then subjected the city to a heavy bombardment campaign with Ilyush IL-28 bombers from Shindand Air Base. The city sustained heavy damage and thousands of Haradis were killed. The number is disputed, but ranges are somewhere between 3,000 and 25,000 people. There were other similar uprisings. Chindawul, which is a district in the, city, or in the old city of Kabul, uh, scholars and influential, influential fighters of the city's Shia communities had been arrested by the Kalk government, and that led to the rebellion. Protests started when residents attacked and held a police station that day, marching on the streets while shouting religious and anti-government slogans. Uh, several thousand people took part. But the government, being the government, brutally retaliated and put down the rebellion in a four-hour battle, and around 2,000 people were arrested and executed. This was the first popular uprising in Kabul itself in 1979. But another did take place in August 1979 at the historical fortress of Bala Hisar on the southern edge of Kabul. And this is the one that really caused the most alarm. Like, Herat was the biggest and the biggest loss, but this was kind of like, oh fuck. <laughs> <laughs> this was a really big oh fuck moment for the PDPA. Insurgents were joined by more rebellious Afghan army officers and infiltrated and occupied this fortress. 
The uprising was commanded by Faiz Ahmad of the Marxist but anti-government revolutionary group of the peoples of Afghanistan, RGPA, and engineered by the Afghanistan Mujahideen Freedom Fighters Front, AMFF, a united front of anti-government Maoist moderate Islamist groups. It was planned to be the first in a litany of insurrections at major army garrisons and bases, with the objective being to deal a military and political blow to the Celt government and pave the way for a coup. This was the most organized of the rebellions. They had actual leaders who knew what they were doing and had like a plan. So yeah, the government again retaliated with tank and mega attacks, and at the five hour mark of the conflict, a bunch of Maoist cadres were killed and arrested and the government took control again. So again, they put down this rebellion in the aftermath. Mohammed Mohsin, Mohammed Dawood, and other leaders were executed in the Policharki prison, and government loudspeaker trucks drove around Kabul announcing that the military action was retaliation of another international imperialist plot against the, quote, people's regime. Aside from Herat, this was the most significant of the many uprisings that took place throughout this period. Um, and things in general were far from stable in Afghanistan. And in February of 1979, things got even more hairy when a group of militants kidnapped the U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, Adolf Spike Dubs. What a nickname. Yeah. It's weird. I don't get it. Anyway. Uh, these militants are sometimes alleged to be part of the radical communist faction National Oppression. What a name. But they're also sometimes described as Islamists, so it's a bit vague as to who they were. But anywho, they kidnapped him and uh, reportedly demanded the, re demanded the release of their communist leader, Badru and Bahis, whom the government denied holding, which is a bit awkward. Yeah. <laughs> the government refused to negotiate with the militants in spite of the U.S. embassy's demands. The U.S. increased pressure on the Afghan government and the Soviet Union, forcefully demanding peaceful negotiations for the re release of their ambassador. Dubs was held in room 117 of the Kabul Hotel, where the U.S. sent its embassy and diplomatic staff to negotiate with the communist faction. Meanwhile, Afghan security forces, accompanied by Soviet advisors, swarmed the hallway and surrounded the rooftops, or and surrounding rooftops of the hotel. Negotiations eventually stalled, and there was an intense exchange of gunfire as the Soviets ordered an assault. All attempts at negotiation failed, <laughs> obviously, and the ambassador died in the crossfire. The U.S. formally expressed to the Soviets their disapproval of the assault by the security forces, which further stressed relations between the two countries. I mean, obviously they'd be pretty pissed. <laughs> Don't really blame them. So, quick note, uh, I guess. So beginning in the mid-1970s, Pakistani intelligence officers had begun quietly lobbying the U.S. and its allies to support the Islamist insurgents in Afghanistan. Relations had been strained between, the pa between Pakistan and the U.S., but Carter stressed as early as January 1979 that repairing their relationship with Pakistan was vital in the light of the unrest in Iran. Carter turned to the CIA to combat the Soviet and Cuban aggression in the Third World, and in March 1979, the CIA sent several covert operations to Afghanistan. Their goal was to make sure that if the USSR decided to go into Afghanistan, it would be a Vietnam-like situation and they would get stuck. In May 1979, U.S. officials secretly began meeting with rebel leaders through Pakistani government contacts. After additional meetings in April and July, Carter signed a presidential finding that authorized the CIA to spend just over $500,000 on quote-unquote non-lethal aid to the Mujahideen. <laughs> National Security Advisor Brzezinski later claimed that, quote, we didn't push the Russians to intervene, but we knowingly increased the probability that they would. According to him, he became convinced by mid-1979 mid that the Soviets were going to invade Afghanistan regardless of U.S. policy due to the Carter administration's failure to respond aggressively to the Soviet activity in Africa. 
He felt that despite the risk of unintended consequences, support for the Mujahideen could be an effective way to prevent Soviet aggression beyond Afghanistan, particularly Brzezinski's native Poland. <laughs> so he had some skin in the game. The events in Herat caused Soviet, Soviet leadership to realize that their Afghan allies were in a bad spot. Uh, <laughs> to, to say the least. Taraki had been like yelling at the Soviet Union for a while, being like, hey, help, please, guys, guys. But they were being rebuffed for a while. But finally, after Herat, the, the, the demands for Soviet military assistance forced a series of secret meetings in the Politburo. So one meeting took place on March 17th. Happy birthday to me. Uh, <laughs> 19, 1978 wasn't born yet and uh, Foreign Minister Gromyko aka Mr. No because he loved using his veto in Security Council meetings I like that his nickname is Mr. No <laughs> right, well it was Mr. Niet because he mm. said Niet a lot which is no anywho Mr. No acknowledged that the DRA faced thousands of insurgents but in accordance with the Brezhnev Doctrine asserted that under no circumstances they could, could they lose Afghanistan so he didn't really want to do anything about it but was also like but we have this policy <laughs> God damn it. Another Politburo member, Alexei Kozygin, expressed distrust of DRA leadership, but on a phone call the following day with, DR with the DRA leadership, Taraki complained that he could no longer rely on his own army, even the Soviet-trained people. They're all defecting help. Uh, he requested Soviet soldiers from, soldiers from the Soviet Central Asian Republics, many of which are inhabited by the same ethnic groups as in Afghanistan. Uh, Turkmen, for instance, like you mentioned. Uh, be smuggled into Afghanistan in Afghan clothing. But these requests were to no avail as the Politburo initially moved towards not intervening. They didn't really want to do anything about it. I think they were... I don't think they... They did not really foresee getting stuck like they were. They definitely underestimated how bad the situation in Afghanistan was. I think you could probably say that underestimating the situation in Afghanistan is really what you could say about every army that's tried to, inv tried to invade <laughs> <Yeah>. Afghanistan. <laughs> so the Soviets aren't unique in that. But they didn't want to do anything about it, but they couldn't lose it, and I think they underestimated how bad it actually was. But anyway, the Soviets, in the meantime at least, did increase their military assistance in the following months by sending large quantities of equipment and extra advisors, so they helped. After the Bala Hissar uprising, it was very much clear to the Soviets that the military was, the, the Afghani military, was extremely weak and was beginning to contribute to the spread of insurgency. It's kind of obvious by all the mutinying. So, as always, Brezhnev was waffling on the situation. It's on brand for him. The three people pushing hardest, though, for this invasion um, in the fall of 1979 were Foreign Minister Gromyko, Chairman of the KGB Yuri Andropov, and Defense Minister Dmitry Ustinov. The principal reasons for invasion was their belief in Moscow that Amin was incompetent and fanatical. He assassinated Taraki at this point. So Taraki got to get the other end of the rebellion life. So Amin was on his own and wilding, I guess. And uh, they, the Soviets were pretty convinced that he was incompetent and nuts and had lost control of the situation completely, which wasn't wrong. <laughs> as well, they also had this belief that the United States via Pakistan was supporting the Islamist insurgency in Afghanistan. So they were suspicious on both ends. Uh, both were true. <laughs> Good for them. <laughs> got, got that prediction right. <laughs> the three agreed that if, if a radical Islamist regime came to power in Afghanistan, it would be not good for them. They assumed that that regime would attempt to sponsor radical Islam in Soviet Central Asia, thereby requiring a preemptive strike. So Afghanistan, because, like it, as Jonah mentioned, it was important to the Russians for a lot of reasons, but the ethnic makeup of the Soviet Union, which was extremely diverse, was really similar to 
Afghanistan and those parts, and they're really afraid that if the Turkmen in Afghanistan and like the Muslims, Muslims in Afghanistan and like all those groups start to be like, hey, like we got this going on, like you guys interested? And they might be, and the Russians didn't want that <laughs> at all. So, in the fall of 1979, they envisioned a short intervention where they would replace Kalkamin with the moderate Parjami communist Babrak Kamal to destabilize the situation. Easy, right? So, on this, eventually Brezhnev decided, and on December 24th, 1979, he ordered the Soviet 40th Army to Afghanistan. They began to land in Kabul on December 25th, and simultaneously, Amin moved the offices of the president to the Tajbeg Palace, believing that the location would be more secure from possible threats. It's kind of true, I guess. I feel like moving into a palace is like a rookie mistake. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on December 27th, Operation Storm 333 commenced, and 700 troops dressed in Afghan uniforms, including KGB and GRU Special Forces officers, occupied major governmental, military, and media buildings in Kabul, including their primary target, the Tajbeg Palace or presidential palace. The operation began at 7 p.m. when the KGB-led Zenith Group destroyed Kabul's communications hub, paralyzing Afghan military command. At 7.15, the assault on the palace began, and as planned, Hafizullah Amin was killed. Simultaneously, other objectives were occupied, and the operation was fully complete by the morning of December 28th. The Soviet military command at Termez, Uzbek SSR, so Uzbekistan, uh, announced on Radio Kabul that Afghanistan had been liberated from Amin's rule. According to the Soviet Politburo, they were complying with the 1978 Treaty of Friendship, Cooperation, and Good Neighborliness. Love that. And Amin had been <laughs> executed by a tribunal for his crimes by the Afghan Revolutionary Central Committee. That committee then elected the former Deputy Prime Minister, Babrak Karmal, who had been previously demoted to ambassador to Czechoslovakia, as the head of the government, and announced that it had been requested, or that it had requested Soviet military assistance. Soviet ground forces under the command of Marshal Sergei Sokolov entered Afghanistan from the north on December 27th. In the morning, the 103rd Guards Airborne Division landed at the airport in Bagram, and the deployment of Soviet troops was underway. The force that entered Afghanistan in addition to the 103rd Guards was under command of the 40th Army and consisted of the 108th and 5th Guards Motor Rifle Divisions, the 860th Separate Motor Rifle Regiment, the 56th Separate Airborne Assault Brigade, and the 36th Mixed Air Corps. Later, the 201st and 68th Motor Rifle Divisions also entered the country along with smaller units. So all in all, the Soviet force was around 1,800 tanks, 80,000 soldiers, and 2,000 AFVs. In the second week alone, Soviet aircraft had made a total of 4,000 flights to Kabul. After the arrival of the two later divisions, the total Soviet force rose to about 100,000 personnel. Which isn't, it's, it's a lot, but not actually that much, I guess. The presence of Soviet troops did not at all have the pacifying effect that they had hoped, and instead it actually just exacerbated the problem. And uh, nationalist sentiment was, fl was flying high, and it caused further rebellion, so the Mujahideen had a really good time recruiting at this point. <laughs> the new president charged the Soviets with causing an increase in the unrest and demanded that the 40th Army step in and quell the rebellion, as his own army had proven untrustworthy, obviously. Soviet troops had found themselves drawn into fighting urban uprisings, tribal, and tribal armies, and sometimes against mutinying Afghan army units. These forces mostly fought in the open, and Soviet air power and artillery made them go away pretty fast. It's pretty vicious, but yeah, efficient. They had thought that this would be a short intervention, but like everyone else before them, the Soviets failed to properly understand the situation. The war developed a new pattern. The Soviets would take occupied cities and the main axis of communication, while the Mujahideen 
divided into small groups and waged a guerrilla war. And guerrilla wars generally favor the guerrillas and not the armies. <laughs> Almost 80% of the country was outside of government control at this point. I don't think the Soviets got that until they got there and were like, oh, oh shit. <laughs> yeah. Oh shit. Soviet troops deployed strategically in the Northeast along the road from Termez to Kabul. You know, gotta protect it. <laughs> and in the West, a strong Soviet influence was maintained to counter any Iranian influence on the matter. In a few cases, though, Soviet units did actually cross into Iran to perform secret attacks to destroy Mujahideen bases, and their helicopters got engaged in a few firefights with Iranian jets. So, oops. Spilled over the border a little bit. Conversely, though, some regions in the Northeast and Central Mountains, uh, Nuristan, where actually this first sort of rebellion started happening, lived pretty peacefully through the whole war. They didn't really get... Nothing really happened. There wasn't a lot of fighting. It was pretty peaceful. They were pretty independent. Uh, life was good for them. So the war really concentrated in certain places. In particular, the Panjshir Valley, or Panjshir Valley. I don't know how to say it. Real Panjshir. Because they kind of had to, they, they took multi-divisional offenses into Mujahideen-controlled areas, and the Panjshir Valley was very much a Mujahideen-controlled area. Between 1980 and 1985, nine different offensives in that area were undertaken, but government control did not improve after any of them. Uh, the Banjir Valley lies 70 kilometers north of Kabul in the Hindu Kush Mountains, close to the Salang Pass, which connects Kabul to the northeastern parts of Afghanistan and further on to Uzbekistan, which was part of the Soviet Union. It's pretty important. In June 1979, an insurrection led by Ahmad Shah Massoud expelled all government forces and the valley became a guerrilla stronghold. From the Panjshir, uh, Mujahideen groups frequently carried out ambushes against the Soviet convoys, bringing supplies to the 40th, station, 40th Army stationed in Afghanistan. The Salang Pass became extremely dangerous, and Soviet truck drivers were awarded a lot of decorations for successfully getting shit through there. It was not good for them. The pressure on their supply chains determined that the Soviets really needed to deal with that problem and get them out of there. So, they essentially had a strategy for all of their offensives, and uh, they had three main features. Number one was the concentration of air assets, so helicopters, planes, etc., including extensive aerial bombardment of a target area, so they'd just blast the ever-loving shit out of a space. And then they would land helicopter forces to stop the withdrawal of enemy forces and engage them from unexpected directions, so we'll just blast the ever-loving hell out of you, and then we'll land, and when you're running away, we'll shoot at you. And then three, they would do a drive-by of mechanized forces into the areas of guerrilla support in conjunction with helicopter landing parties, so they would also drive more forces in. These tactics were extremely destructive to the civilian population in these regions, and that was by design. So, so the Russians did this, well, they did this kind of in all wars, and they did this especially in World War II as well. They would burn everything and just like trash everything because we don't want the advancing army to su survive, even though in World War II they were retreating, but it doesn't matter. They have a scorched earth policy in a lot of ways because it works. So it was, it, was, it was somewhat intentional. Their hope was that they would force mass migration of civilians from the Panjshir Valley and that destroying all of the crops and livestock would deprive Ahmad Shah Massoud of necessary resources to sustain his army. Like their offensives in this Panjshir Valley are very much like a snapshot of the entire war in terms of just being a stalemate. The bottom line was ultimately that any victories the Soviets achieved in the Panjshir Valley were extremely temporary. At one point in January 1983, Masood was forced to find, sign a ceasefire because he had to rebuild his organization because they had destroyed everything. But I think it lasted like a month. It was really short-lived. <laughs> the reason why this like stalemate kind of happened is that these large-scale attacks were stupid, <laughs> honestly. They weren't really the right strategy for dealing with a guerrilla army because 
they were big and so people knew about them. There was a lot of planning and people involved. Uh, Mujahideen forces would often learn of coming offenses or offensives in advance from their compatriots in the DRA. So this meant that both the civilians and guerrillas could move safely out of the way of the majority of the bombs, and guerrillas could also plan ambushes, lay mines, move weapons caches. After the armored personnel carriers and helicopters came, the guerrillas would then retreat into the side valleys and carry out small ambushes rather than openly confront the Soviets because they knew that they would just get destroyed. So they knew their, they knew their terrain and they knew what they were doing. Basically, it's pretty safe to say that the Soviets did not get what they bargained for. <laughs> as they did not initially foresee taking on such an active role in fighting the rebels in Afghanistan, and attempted to play down their role as giving light assistance to the Afghan army. But as I mentioned before, the presence of the Soviets did not pacify the people, instead really helped Mujahideen grow its numbers. So instead of helping the Afghan army like they intended, they just assumed they'd be like the backbone of the Afghan army, you know, supporting them, giving them supplies, etc. Uh, they ended up doing most of the work. <laughs> so. It was clear that that was the case, and once that became the case, they employed three main strategies to pacification. Uh, the first was intimidation, in which they used airborne attacks and armored ground attacks to destroy villages, livestock, and crops in troubled areas. The second was subversion, which entailed sending spies to rejoin or to join resistance groups and report information, as well as bribing local guerrilla leaders into seizing operations. And the third strategy was uh, Soviets using military forays into contested territories in an effort to root out guerrillas and limit their options. Classic search and destroy operations were implemented using Mi-24 helicopter gunships that would provide cover to the ground forces and armored vehicles. Once the villages were occupied by Soviet forces, inhabitants who remained there were frequently interrogated and tortured or for information or killed. I've also read stories of like other brutalities that the Soviet army committed where they would like give kids candy to run into minefields to find mines and like that kind of stuff. They were not a very kind occupying force no. as the Soviet army never really was in any case, but to go with this, their brute force, they, they pretty much were just like, we're gonna smash everything. Spoiler alert, it doesn't get better for Afghanistan. No, not at all. It really doesn't. It really doesn't. And yeah, like the Soviets had a really like, <laughs> They do a really good job, actually, of capturing this in Charlie Wilson's War, like in the movie. <laughs> There's a couple scenes when they're showing the Soviet, in like, they show Soviet gunships and stuff like that, and they do a very good job of capturing the brute force approach where they pretty much just swing in, shoot the fuck out of everything, and hope for the best. Yeah. To go with that, the Soviets also use the Soviet secret police, the KHAD, to gather information, infiltrate the Mujahideen, and spread false information, bribe tribal militias into fighting, and also organize a government militia. It's possible to know how successful they were in infiltrating Mujahideen groups, but it's thought that they succeeded in penetrating like a decent number that were based in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iran. They were thought to have had particular success in igniting internal rivalries and political divisions amongst the resistance groups. So uh, the Mujahideen had Sunni and Shia groups. And so the easiest way to split up any group is to go in and stoke the fires of ethnic tension. Works pretty well. There are two people we need to mention yeah. before going on. Yeah. Oh, yeah, a certain, a certain man from a wealthy Saudi family named Osama bin Laden. Yeah. As well as a... Originally he was Palestinian, but he's had different citizenships. A man named Abdullah Yusuf Azam were 
two of the fighters inspired to travel to Afghanistan to fight with the Mujahideen. Because at this point, it, at this point, they'd pretty much called a jihad yeah. against the invading Soviets, and so a lot of people from Arab countries went to Afghanistan, particularly from Saudi Arabia. They yeah, they congregated mostly in Pakistan. They're in the in Pakistan's northwest frontier province, which is bordering Afghanistan. Super hilly, super isolated, uh, mountainous, mountainous. So a lot of the freedom fighters, uh, well, quote unquote say, freedom quote unquote, fighters, the resistance fighters, we say, were all there. Um, and it was like the biggest uh, networking base for anti-Soviet Afghan fighters. And there was a lot of them. I mean, like it's not it when they weren't all Afghani. There was a lot of Pakistani and yeah, obviously Saudi. A lot of Saudis. Yeah. A lot of Saudis. Um, Which has always been the biggest criticism of uh, Saudi Arabia and doing business with Saudi Arabia is that they have long, long supported and funded these types of insurrections. Also active in the insurrection groups were some Maoist guerrilla groups. They were a lot less notable to the Mujahideen and in part because they were also communists, so they were rebelling, but for different reasons yeah. <laughs> entirely. So I think the, I think like the biggest yeah, the, the thing that made the Mujahideen probably so successful was one, that they were just like true guerrilla fighters, but like the, the religious resolve and like the Islam or like the fundamentalist part of it. Yeah, because like, they were like really willing to die for Yeah, it. and I think, I don't want to say like it, it, they are Islamist, obviously, but like fundamentalist in general because there's a lot of other groups like them. Yeah. Of varying religious. Religions, ideologies, yeah. doesn't fucking matter. So, yeah, they... I think the religious aspect is really what made them so so successful because yeah. they were they were their cause was very like important to them and also because their cause was relatable to the rest of the country. So like everyone else was was Muslim. So at the end of the day they represented them where the communists didn't they're anti-religious and I think religion was really like the lightning rod. Yeah. As much as we want to claim agriculture was part of it. No, it was <laughs> definitely I think the state atheism the attempt to enforce yeah. state atheism definitely had a huge role in it and also being a isolated tribe like tribal based like yeah. on that kind of like well, fundamental exactly. islam well it's, it's trying to put a system on something that like previously had a system that's very different yeah and it doesn't work a lot of the yeah, time it's putting and, like square pegs and round holes a lot <laughs> yeah and like part of the reason why a lot of uh, Saudis um, went to Afghanistan is because uh, Saudi Arabia, they, for the most part, practice a type of Islam called Wahhabism, which is pretty extreme. Yeah. Um, I don't really have a comparison, but like, yeah, it's it's pretty extreme. I'll just put it that way. But yeah, you can only do so much against Soviet helicopters with AK-47s like, and <laughs> Pistols. Yeah. I mean, there's. I saw a lot of talk. It's like, there's only so much you can do with rocks, like throwing rocks. And it's like, well, they, they weren't little... actually throwing rocks at helicopters. Like, they weren't that stupid. No. But, yeah, there's definitely, like, if you know what kind of helicopters they're using, they're using the Hind. Yeah. Uh, which is basically a flying tank. Oh, yeah, these gunships are intense. If you guys have played... Call of Duty, any of the Call of Duty games, you'll know what these helicopters are. <laughs> They're massive. So this brings us to an interesting development in the United States. 
conservative think tank, the Heritage Foundation, began to brainstorm ways the Reagan administration could expand Carter's Operation Cyclone, which was the operation that Lindsay mentioned before where they're funneling. Starting to funnel money. No, you know, what is it? Non-lethal aid. Non-lethal aid. aid. <laughs> which is very Carter. Very I, I love that. Anyway. Yeah. It's not uh, actually that much different, though, than uh, FDR in World War II. No, definitely not. Lease. But, um, yeah, they wanted to expand Carter's Operation Cyclone to something, you know, more. But not just in Afghanistan, but also other states facing significant socialist transitions, as this one source put. Along with Afghanistan, Heritage also set its eyes on Ethiopia, Nicaragua, Vietnam, Laos, Iran, Cambodia, Angola, and Libya. Heritage's foreign policy expert on the Third World, Michael Johns, traveled to Nicaragua, Angola, and Cambodia, amongst many others, in order to speak with resistance leaders there and gather information of what they needed. So the Reagan Doctrine was implemented first in Angola and Nicaragua, supporting the UNITA movement and the Contras, respectively. During Reagan's 1985 State of the Union address, he said, quote, we must not break faith with those who are risking their lives on every continent from Afghanistan to Nicaragua to defy Soviet aggression and secure rights which have been ours since birth. Support for freedom fighters is self-defense, end quote. Lindsay mentioned the name Charlie Wilson before and who Charlie Wilson was. He was a representative from Texas's second district. His interest in Afghanistan began after he read an article by the Associated Press covering refugees fleeing the Soviet occupation. This inspired him to contact the United States House Committee on Appropriations and speak with the people responsible for quote-unquote black appropriations, aka black projects, or has highly classified projects not to be publicly acknowledged by the military, contractors, or the government. For example... One of these black projects was Area 51 for the longest time. It's not anymore because they've actually publicly acknowledged its existence. He requested a two-fold appropriation increase to, the, to be sent to Afghanistan. Due to his position on the House Appropriations Subcommittee on Defense, who also approved funding for the CIA operations all around the world, his request was approved. Wilson continued to advocate for increasing the CIA's budget for its Afghanistan operations, including $40 million in 1983. $17 million was spent on providing anti-aircraft missiles in order for the Mujahideen to fight against Soviet hind helicopters and MI-8 HIPS, <laughs> which are the transport helicopters. The following year, Wilson was approached by Gus Evarkotos, a CIA officer, and asked Wilson to secure another $50 million in funding for the operation. For those of you who are curious, he's played by Philip Seymour Hoffman in Charlie Wilson's War. This was in direct violation of CIA policy, which prohibits lobbying to Congress for funds because, you know, duh. Despite this, Wilson agreed, and in a speech to Congress, he said, quote, The U.S. had nothing whatsoever to do with these people's decision to fight but we'll be damned by history if we let them fight with stones, end quote. Truth is, they're kind of damned by history either way, as we have, are now still no. currently witnessing. Now we know. Yeah. 
His greatest success in aiding the Mujahideen is him securing $330 million from the Pentagon before the end of the fiscal year. It was with these funds the Mujahideen was provided with Stinger missiles. Wilson was given the Honored Colleague Award by the CIA and is the first civilian to have ever been given it to. Wilson's actions remain controversial in part because most of the aid he got passed was given to Gulbuddin Hekmatar, a man accused of countless war crimes and who would later aid the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan. So what are Stingers? Stingers are the nickname for the FIM-92 missiles. They are a manned portable air defense system, and that is a mouthful, but their nickname are manpads. <laughs> <laughs> they used infrared homing or heat-seeking technology to lock onto and fire onto enemy aircraft. Nearly 500 Stingers were supplied to the Mujahideen with some sources saying it's closer to between 1,500 and 2,000. And their main targets in Afghanistan were the aforementioned Mil Mi-24 Heinz and the Mi-8 Hips. Both chopper types produced large amounts of heat, making them perfect targets for the Stingers. Basically, any countermeasures that these things would try to use, it probably wouldn't work because the aircraft itself was hotter than the flares and whatnot. They're believed to be responsible for a majority of the Soviet aircraft lost in the last two years of the war with a 70% kill ratio. Soviet helicopters, however, also suffered in the dry and hot climate and dusty surroundings because if you look at these things, you'll see the exhaust ports are quite big. And when dust gets blown into them from the rudders, it's not good. These things would get clogged and... I mean, heli helicopters actually go down surprisingly easily. Yeah. The above claims are disputed, with American journalists quoting a Russian general claiming only 35 air Soviet aircraft and 63 helicopters were actually destroyed between 1987 and 1988 by the Stinger missiles. So it's unknown what their effect is, because one side says one thing and then the other says another. But the truth is they're probably pretty effective in bogging the Soviets down. At this point, like, it's kind of just the Soviets bashing their heads against walls at this point. Like, they claim some land, the Mujahideen take it back. A lot of death. <laughs> at this point, yeah, it became stalemated. A lot it's of like, death and fatality. Yeah. What is it? The Soviets fuck shit up and then, like, fuck shit up for the Mujahideen and then they leave and then the Mujahideen just goes back in. Basically, what happened in Vietnam? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because this, is, this really, this really is the Soviet Union's Vietnam. Yeah, like the reason why this episode is called the Bear Trap is because that's a nickname for the war. This yeah. was a literal bear trap. Yeah, and the Soviets stepped right into it. At this point, the late war is when things started to turn around in 1987, particularly after the Singer missiles. There's a massive compound constructed in Afghanistan because a lot of the Mujahideen fighters were trained in Pakistan and then had to cross over the border into Afghanistan. Well, a lot of the Mujahideen leadership wanted to have a training ground in Afghanistan to make it a little easier. 
And so a, a place known as Al Masada, or the lion, which translates to the lion's den, was constructed as a means of operating a training ground in Afghanistan instead of having one in, in, a, in Pakistan. And it was built by none other than Osama bin fucking Laden. Ah, old Osama popping up. Uh, yeah. On April 17th, 1987, 200 Soviet airborne and Spetsnaz troops, along with support from the Afghan military, descended on the compound against an Afghan force that is estimated to have been somewhere between 50 and, quote, in the thousands. (laughs) That's like the most broadest estimation ever, but that's all I could find is someone saying in the thousands, and that is a quote. That's pretty common with this. Fighting lasted until July 13th, and the Soviet forces failed to capture the area and instead just said fuck it and withdrew. Bin Laden was injured during the fighting here, and this is actually... I mean, it's this is literally all the, there is to talk about it, and it seems super insignificant, but Arab reporters sensationalized the fuck out of this battle. Especially Bin Laden's leadership. This is really the battle that Bin Laden's name became kind of internationally known, I would say. Yeah. In fact, the late Jamal Khashoggi wrote a profile on Bin Laden during this time and was even invited by Bin Laden himself to cover his efforts on the war. The coverage by Arab media drew attention to his cause and many were inspired to travel to Afghanistan to fight along his side as a result. I, this needs to be said. Like Jamal Khashoggi, for those of you who don't know, is the journalist who was recently, I think last August, was mur- was murdered by the Saudi government in the Saudi embassy in Turkey over his um, writings critical of the Saudi royal family. Yeah. But he was, uh, he, he was a, for those of you who don't know, he was a reporter. And yeah, he ended up being the guy who profiled Osama. From what I looked, he didn't really like Osama that much, but I mean, he was just like, well, it's, I'm doing my job, so I'll, I'll do my job. The city of Kost in southern Afghanistan housed a three kilometer runway used by the Soviet forces as a base of operation for helicopter missions. In 1980, knowing the significance of the city, Mujahideen forces quickly blockaded the single land route into the city, halting any Soviet advance from Kost. On November 19, 1987, 20,000 Soviet troops of the 40th Army, supported by 8,000 Afghan soldiers, began Operation Magistral, with the goal of reopening the road between Gardez and Kost in order to begin a supply line to the base. Because, I mean, they need fuel (laughs) and food. You know, important things. Afghan troops led the initial offensive by clearing out the surrounding plains of Gardez before focus shifted to the mountains. By November 28th, most of the Shabak Kal Valley had been secured. On November 30th, 900 Afghan soldiers were airlifted in the Shabak Kal and engaged Mujahideen forces while also constructing defensive positions at the same time. Basically, the, the idea was to just get secured control of the road and build defensive positions in the surrounding highlands. 
Mujahideen forces established their main blocking position at the Satukandav Pass, approximately 30 kilometers east of Gardez. Here, AA defenses were constructed at all possible heights along with dish-heavy machine gun emplacements, recoilless rifle artillery, and anti-tank launchers, mainly RPG-7s. They also placed a significant amount of mines on the roads. Negotiations for safe passage failed when the Mujahideen refused to allow Soviets to get through and an attack was ordered to begin on November 28th. Prior to moving in, Colonel General Boris Gromov ordered a plane fly over the pass and drop dummy paratroopers in order to fool the the Afghan fighters. The ruse worked and the Mujahideen began firing at the dummies, allowing a reconnaissance plane to map out their positions based on muzzle fire, which is fucking genius. (laughs) This allowed more precise targeting for artillery and airstrikes in which a four-hour barrage commenced afterwards. The following day, November 29th, Soviet motorized troops moved in, but were stalled by the heavy Mujahideen fire. Dealing with heavy casualties, the Soviets withdrew back to safety, forcing the generals back to the drawing board. On December 1st, Gromov planned and ordered an attack by the airborne battalion with support from the Afghan commandos, who successfully captured the high ground overlooking the pass. Knowing they would be shortly surrounded, the Mujahideen made the decision to retreat in order to avoid total annihilation. Their hasty exit meant they had to leave most of their equipment behind. So this was not a good morale boost for the Mujahideen. They lost a lot of equipment and a lot of people and a lot of strategic... Position. Yeah. In the following days, it was decided by Mujahideen leaders it was too costly to try and hold the road against the advancing Soviet forces in order to retreat. However, they launched surprise attacks on Soviet scouts and front columns. While this succeeded in slowing the Soviet advance, Kost was able to be relieved on December 30th. Afterward, a combination of Soviet and DRA forces constructed outposts along the length of the road in order to maintain control of the route. Attacks on supply lines continued because the Mujahideen basically retreated into the mountains and were like, well, we're going to just do short attacks on supply lines rather than, you know, full-scale attacks and holding. So as these attacks on the supply lines continued, Soviet commanders decided it was best to secure as much of the road as possible. A strategically important landmark was a nameless hill designated by its height of 3,234 meters, hence the name Hill 3234. This was located near the Afghan-Pakistan border. 39 men of the 345th Independent Guards Airborne Regiment were airlifted to the top of the hill on January 7, 1988 and immediately began constructing defensive positions and observation posts in order to keep as much of an eye on, on the road as possible to protect from incoming enemy movements. At 3.30 p.m., the regiment came under heavy fire from around 200 to 250 Mujahideen fighters attacking from both sides, including from within Pakistan. The regiment remained in contact with the 40th Army, who were able to provide artillery support and supply drops. Despite being heavily outnumbered, the regiment repelled all 12 attacks by the Mujahideen. Just before dawn of the 8th, the Mujahideen fled the area Suffering losses and with nearly all soldiers wounded, the regiment remained on the hill until the last convoy left the area. 
Out of 39 Soviet soldiers, six were killed and 28 were wounded. The Mujahideen, on the other hand, suffered almost 200 casualties. This is, yeah, this is one of those last stand moments, like beyond all, against all odds. Mm -hmm. All of the Soviet troops on 32-34 were awarded the Order of the Red Banner and the Order of the Red Star, while two were posthumously awarded the Hero of the Soviet Union. And Super, uh, good, super good movie on this. It's a Russian language film called Ninth Company. And I, it was on Netflix at one point. I feel like it's probably gone. but I couldn't find it, so yeah. it's probably gone. If you have deep internet skills and are interested in... <laughs> also, if you're a fan of Sabaton... Yeah. Also they, they have a song on their album, Last Stand, that's called Hill 3234. The war had its effect on neighboring Pakistan as well. Most of the Mujahideen were trained in camps in Pakistan, as I mentioned before, and the government openly supported them. One region in particular that was affected was the gilgit baltistan region, an area in the disputed Kashmir region between India, Pakistan, and China, but that's an episode for another time. It is also the only Shia majority area in Pakistan with the rest predominantly made up of Sunnis. Unrest amongst the population had been an issue since Pakistan's creation in 1948 as a result of the sectarian divide. The locals charged the government had granted Sunnis favorable positions in business and local government as well as granting preferable treatment in legal matters. Tensions became worse following Zia al-Haq's coup d'etat and his goal to establish an Islamic state based on Sharia law, as it would be based on Sunni principles. Violence on Shias increased during his regime. He was not a good person. He was pretty shit. I mean, anyone really who wants to implement Sharia law is probably not a good person. At the end of May 1988, local Shias saw the the crescent moon in the sky, which is the, what marks the end of Ramadan and the beginning of Eid celebrations. Rather than looking up for themselves, <laughs> a group of extremist Sunnis became angered that celebrations uh, had commenced despite their religious leaders not declaring Ramadan over. I mean, literally, they could have just looked up in the fucking sky. <laughs> Am I wrong? No. No. <laughs> Um, they, in retaliation, began attacking the celebrating Shias. In response, local Shias revolted and demanded a separate Shia state be formed. Local leaders were able to calm the revolt for a short time, but the military government made all hell break loose when they tasked local tribes to discipline the Shias instead. Tribes from Pakistan and Afghanistan were invited to enter the Gilgit area to attack the population. Between 200 and 700 people died as a result. B. Rahman, former head of the Research and Analysis Wing, which is Indian Foreign Intelligence, has alleged that bin Laden took part in the massacre, which is why I'm bringing this up. There's not a lot to suggest he might have been involved. He makes a lot of accusations about him being involved, but doesn't really provide any proof that he was involved. But again, it would not surprise me if bin Laden was involved because it's fucking bin Laden. <laughs> Seems it would be on brand. <laughs> it's it's up his alley. Let's just say it's that. Very on brand. Meanwhile, during this time, representatives from Afghanistan, Pakistan, the Soviet Union, and the United States met in Geneva to negotiate an agreement to end hostilities in Afghanistan under the supervision of the United Nations. 
These resulted in the signing of the Geneva Accords on April 14, 1988. The agreement included the establishment of formal relations between the DRA and Pakistan, assurance of non-interference and non-intervention in each other's affairs, and Afghanistan also agreed to accept the return of Afghan refugees who had fled into Pakistan. The Accords also established a timeline for Soviet withdrawal from the country. So this is the beginning of Soviet withdrawal from the country. So this is the beginning of when the Soviets start to, start to kind of like think about leaving, I guess. They had a date on which they had to start leaving. While this appeared to make all present happy, the Mujahideen were not invited. <laughs> So of course they declared their intention. No one to told them the war yeah, was over. They de- declared their intention to continue fighting and did not accept the terms of the accord. Of course. I mean that kind of makes sense. But also not yeah, exactly. You'll you'll not hear me side with the mujahideen Super like odd. a lot, but this kind of makes sense. By this time, many mujahideen fighters had begun to ex- express their desires to continue the jihad on a larger level and aid other Islamic struggles across the world. Does anyone listening see where this is going? Of those supporting global jihad were Bin Laden and Assam, who met on August 11th, 1988. There, Bin Laden agreed to use his economic assets and his fighting experience to help the jihad elsewhere. This, by the meanings conclusion they had formed a group that is known as al-qaeda one thing you got to remember that people seem to forget bin laden was rich <laughs> he still had access to some of his family's well his part of his family's money yeah. that he used to you know assist economically al-qaeda's ideology was and it still remains wahhabism so the an extremist islamic doctrine founded by muhammad ibn abd al-Wahhab, whose descendants founded and continue to rule Saudi Arabia to this day. Salifist jihadism, which is the rejection of democratic and Shia rule. Kitbism, which is a jihad, which means it's just basically a jihadist conquest ideology. Pan-Islamism, anti-communism, anti-Zionism, and anti-Semitism. Fun little fact, I guess, as fun as you can get for this fucking people. Al-Qaeda translates to the base or the foundation. Azam would have been probably a more recognized figure had fate not caught up with them. On November 24, 1989, Azam and his two sons went Peshawar, Pakistan, when their car had been struck by a roadside bomb, killing all three. To this day, the assassins remain unknown. As a result of his death, his organization folded and many of his followers joined Al-Qaeda. Yeah. So I feel that if he had not been killed, he would have been a much more known figure. But, but he's mostly, for, I mean, I'm not complaining that he's forgotten, but he's widely forgotten. I mean, obviously, I have to fucking talk about him in this episode, but yeah, so... But yeah, not like not a lot. I didn't even know that he was a founding member of Al Qaeda until doing the research for this episode. Hmm. But yeah, the Soviets are fucking off now. Yeah, finally. <laughs> I guess. Um, they kind of have their own problems happening at this point. Yeah. So, like the Great Stagnation. Poland. Uh, the era of yeah. 
And also, somewhere in here, Brezhnev dies. <laughs> so, Brezhnev's health in the late 80s was really deteriorating, which is not super helpful in terms of decision-making. But it worsened, especially in uh, 1981, 1982, in that winter. And so, in the meantime, the country was ulti- ultimately being governed by Gromyko, Ustinov, and Andropov, as well as Mikhail Suslov. So, the three people who had pushed for invasion into Afghanistan the hardest were leading the country, plus another dude. Um, and sorry, Mikhail, I don't really know what you're up to. Uh, well, crucial Politburo decisions were made in Brezhnev's absence. So while the Politburo was pondering the question of who would succeed, all signs indicated that the ailing leader was definitely dying. <laughs> the choice of their successor would have been influenced by Suslov, but he died at the age of 79 in January 1982. So back to the troika of Ustinov, Gromyko, and Andropov. Andropov took Suslov's seat in the Central Committee Secretariat. By May, it became obvious that Andropov would try to make a bid for the office and take over for his buddy Brezhnev. With the help of some fellow KGB associates, helpful people to know, started circulating rumors that political corruption had become worse during Brezhnev's tenure as leader. Not really a rumor when it's true, Um, (laughs) I guess. But anyway, uh, they were trying to basically create an environment hostile to Brezhnev in the Politburo. And his actions showed that Andropov was not afraid of Brezhnev, which is unusual up until that point, right? Uh, Brezhnev rarely appeared in public during 1982. The government just claimed that he was not seriously ill, but just, you know, surrounded by doctors all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Preemptively surrounded by doctors. Uh, He suffered a severe stroke in May 1982 and refused to relinquish office. On November 7th, 1982, despite his ailing health, he actually was still present, standing on Lenin's mausoleum during the annual military parade in Red Square and a demonstration of workers commemorating the anniversary of the October Revolution, held in November, because it makes so much sense. Uh, The event was also marked by Brezhnev's final appearance before dying three days after by a heart attack. He was honored with a state funeral, which was followed with a five-day period of nationwide mourning. Uh, He was buried in the Kremlin Wall Necropolis in Red Square, been there seen it pretty cool and a lot of people attended his funeral but anyway in the meantime uh and drop off takes off and that does affect the war a little bit because anytime a leader changes it's always shitty and difficult but the withdrawal from this from afghanistan was really complicated much like the u.s withdrawal from vietnam it's when you're stuck like they were it's kind of like how do you undo all of that well saving face yeah and like how do you undo all of the like shit that got you in the quagmire, right? Like, it's kind of just, like, the reverse process of entering. So the first step, obviously, was they had to transfer the burden of fighting since the Mujahideen didn't really know the war was over and were pretty pissed that they didn't get to come to that accord. So <laughs> they wanted to keep fighting, obviously. And so the Soviet Union needed to transfer their role onto someone else, and that was the Afghan Armed Forces. So their goal was to prepare them to operate without Soviet help. Um, which is everyone's goal when leaving Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah. Really? It's not a new one. Yeah, so under Soviet guidance, the DRA armed forces were built up to an official strength of 302,000 in 1986. And to minimize the risk of a coup d'etat, they were divided into different branches, each modeled on its Soviet counterpart. So the Ministry of Defense Forces numbered 132,000, the Ministry of Interior, 70,000, and the Ministry of State Security, the KHAD, were 80,000. So it's interesting because I actually didn't I'd already, I'd always kind of known, I guess, about like the forces being split up in the Soviet sort of way, but didn't really think about why. And that makes sense <laughs> in a lot of ways. Split them up and they can't as easily join together, I guess. 
But these were theoretical figures. In reality, each service was plagued with desertions, and the army alone suffered 32,000 desertions a year. So pretty hard to say your number is 300,000 when you lose 32,000 people a year. And probably aren't replacing them at that rate. (laughs) So the decision to engage primarily Afghan forces was taken by the Soviets, but was resented by the PDPA, who viewed their departure as... Yeah, they didn't really like the idea that the Soviets were leaving. They weren't wild about it. Um, In May 1987, a DRA force attacked well-entrenched Mujahideen positions in the Argandab district, but the Mujahideen held their ground, and the attackers suffered heavy casualties. In the spring of 86, an offensive into Paktia province briefly occupied the Mujahideen base at Zawar, only at the cost of heavy losses, so any success they had came with loss. Meanwhile, the Mujahideen benefited from the expanded foreign military support from the United States, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and other Muslim nations. So they were doing pretty good. In 1985, Gorbachev gets promoted to general secretary, and his new way of thinking on foreign and domestic policy was likely a very important factor in the Soviets' ultimate decision to leave. Um, He saw that this war was definitely a stalemate and was kind of saw a parallel in... At this point, there's like a large parallel between the war and Soviet society in terms of just like, they are stuck in the mud and not going anywhere and are declining and it's not going well and we need to do something. And the war is actually a large reason why the Soviet Union itself is declining because it's costing so much goddamn money. Um, And yeah, so Gorbachev gets there and decides to blow it all up because it's not working. That's probably, I guess, a little bit of an extreme categorization, but he gets there and he sees that things are not going well. That's why he gets promoted. And he'd already been attempting to remove the Soviet Union from this economic stagnation and reform the Soviet Union with uh, Glasnost and Perestroika. Not going to talk too much about those policies. You should probably know about them already (laughs) at this point. He'd been attempting to ease the Cold War in general um, by signing uh, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty with the U.S. in 1987. And withdrawing the troops from Afghanistan was going to be a big step for him because... Their presence had garnered a lot of international condemnation, obviously. He regarded a lot of things as Brezhnev's biggest mistakes, but primarily confrontation with China um, and some other stuff. And I'm thinking invasion of Afghanistan was one of them. But Beijing has stipulated that a normalization of relations would have to wait until Moscow withdrew its army from Afghanistan. And I mean, there were some other things, but that was pretty primary. And in 1989, the first Sino-Soviet summit in 30 years took place. And so it was really important for Gorbachev to get his troops out of there. He wanted to save face. Yeah, it's not that easy (laughs) to do that. Yeah. In September 1988, uh, Soviet MiG-23 fighters shot down two Iranian AH-1 Cobras that had intruded into Afghan airspace. Operation Magistral was one of the final offensive operations undertaken by the Soviets, which was a successful sweep operation that cleared the road between Gardez and Coast. The operation did not have any lasting effect on the outcome of the conflict or the soiled political and military status of the Soviets in the eyes of the West, but it was a symbolic gesture that marked the end of their widely condemned presence in the country. With yeah, it didn't, in the end, it really didn't accomplish anything. anything. It just made them look a little bit. It was kind of like a, an olive branch. Yeah. The first half of the Soviet contingent was withdrawn from May 8, 15th to August 16th, 1988, and the second from November 15th to February 15th, 1989. In order to ensure a safe passage, the Soviets had negotiated ceasefires with local Mujahideen commanders, so the withdrawal was generally executed peacefully except for the, op- or for the Operation Typhoon. General Yazov, who uh, the defense minister of the Soviet Union, ordered the 40th Army to violate the agreement with Ahmed Shah Massoud, who commanded a large force in the Panjir Valley and attacked exposed forces. 
Soviet attack was initiated to protect uh, Najibullah, who did not have a ceasefire in effect with Masood, and who rightly feared an offensive by Masood's forces after the Soviet withdrawal. General Gromov, the 40th Army commander, objected to the operation but reluctantly obeyed the order. Operation Typhoon began on January 23rd and continued for three days. To minimize their own losses, the Soviets abstained from close-range fighting and instead used long-range artillery, surface-to-surface, and air-to-surface missiles. Numerous civilian casualties were reported. Massoud had not threatened the withdrawal to this point and did not attack Soviet forces after they breached the agreement. Overall, the Soviet attack represented a defeat for Massoud's forces, who lost 600 fighters and in total, either killed or wounded. After the withdrawal of the Soviet forces, the DRA were left fighting alone and had to abandon some provincial capitals, and it was widely believed that they would not be able to resist the Mujahideen for long. However, in the spring of 1989, DRA forces inflicted a sharp defeat on the Mujahideen at Jalalabad. The government of President Carmel, which was definitely a puppet regime, was ineffective because it was a puppet regime. <laughs> it was weakened by divisions within the PDPA and the Parchim faction. Nothing really changed there. And the regime's efforts to expand its base. Yeah. So basically, less than a month after... So I'm going to just rush through this because like, there's not... Yeah. This is ba- basically the, this the, is the end. The end. Um, less than a month after the Soviet withdrawal, the Peshawar 7 Alliance, which is an alliance of a bunch of different Mujahideen groups. That's one thing we forgot to mention too late now. Uh, but the yeah, it's a, it was a coalition of seven. of seven Mujahideen groups. And the reason why it's called the Peshawar 7 is because they were formed in Peshawar, Pakistan. And they were under the support of Pakistani intelligence launched an offensive... Okay. Sorry, they became known as uh, the Islamic Unity of Afghanistan, of Afghanistan Mujahideen. Yeah, that was their official name, their but they're most yeah. like they're mostly called the Peshawar yeah, Seven. Yeah, but their yeah, their official yeah. name was. Well, but it was yeah, it was seven Mujahideen groups together. So, them under the support of the of Pakistani intelligence, launched an offensive on Jalalabad, which is one of the five largest cities in Afghanistan. Funny thing is that the Pakistani intelligence did not notify their prime minister that they were doing this. (laughs) Fighting lasted until the end of June, with the government emerging victorious and roughly 3,000 killed on both sides. The battle was a major morale boost for the Afghan army because they were able to show that they did not rely on Soviet help to... However, also the Mujahideen had a setback when Massoud's group... Jamait e Islami and the affirma- the previously mentioned Galbuddin Hikmatar's group, Hajeb Islami Galbuddin, skirmished with one another during June 1990, resulting in both sides losing h- hundreds of casualties. So, not good. Not great. This becomes a bit of a pattern in Afghanistan as well. So. Honestly, there's a lot of patterns that appear in this war. Yeah, and frankly, at this point, things look good for the Afghan government. (laughs) However, on March 14th, 1991, Mujahideen forces once again moved on cost and were able to conquer the city by the 31st, lifting the 11-year siege of the city when the city garrison surrendered. Internal struggle in Mohammed Najibullah's government began to crack the country as well. The power struggle between the Kalk and Parchem factions continued to plague the state with problems, as you, it does. Shenawaz Taney, the defense minister and from the Kalk faction, frequently clashed with 
Najibullah's plan of national reconciliation with the Mujahideen. He also believed his faction was slowly being removed from power in order to create a Parcham-dominated government, which is probably true. Tonight, I feel like everything that people were suspicious of other people doing were actually kind of like, they, on, ha- they all had it. All, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Tanay began secretly planning with Hekmatar, and the two plotted to remove Najibullah from power. The coup began on March 6, 1990, but failed, and Tanay was forced to flee to Pakistan, where he continued to work with the Mujahideen. Other major factors in the DRA's decline were its natural gas reserves completely depleted, and that was their only export. And it had been completely depleted by 1989. This forced the country to become entirely dependent on Soviet aid, which included 250,000 tons of food every year. However, when the Soviet economy began to tank in 1991, these commitments were impossible to keep. After the failed Soviet coup and the, pretty much the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, the new Russian president, Boris Yeltsin, announced an end to Russian assistance to Najibullah's regime. By January 1992, the re- fuel reserves had been depleted and the Afghan Air Force were unable to fly. Their growing food shortage led to a 60% rise in desertion from the Afghan army from 1990 to 1991. Militias loyal to the regime began to de- abandon the government after the latter could no longer provide the weapons that they had been promised and instead either went neutral or joined the Mujahideen. General Abdul Rashid Dostrum made an agreement to defect the Mujahideen after a secret meeting between him and Massoud, which tipped the strength and numbers in the Mujahideen's favor. By the end of 1991, all support from Russia had ceased, and in fact, the Russian SF. SR had ceased to exist. The USSR had ceased to exist. In March 1992, an attempt was made to open negotiations between the Mujahideen groups and Najibullah's government to form an interim council. While Massoud was open to join, he was unable to convince Hekmatar, who said, quote, We will march into Kabul with our naked sword. No one can stop us. Why should we meet with the leaders? End quote. On April 14th, Najibullah was forced to resign following the loss of Bagram Air Base. Abdul Rahim Hatif was named acting head of state. However, shortly after this, all major forces converged on Kabul, where a four-year-long battle would ensue. This effectively brought an end to the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan and brings an end to this episode. Yeah. I mean, this is like... I haven't really done this since the first season, but I used to ask, what have we learned? The truth is, we're still, it's not something, it's not like the Yugoslav Wars where we haven't learned a thing, but it's definitely more of a, we're still learning. For sure. Well, I mean, the thing that I just can't stress to people enough about Afghanistan is just like, my favorite fact, I guess, more than any, more than that, is um, that every country that's ever invaded Afghanistan has failed. Mm-hmm. It has never been conquered. Like, it's 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 impressive, <laughs> amongst other things. But it's just, it's one of those countries that, yeah, you can't. It's well, that's one of the things struggling Putin, to put words. Well, one of the things Putin, because Putin was like what a lot of people don't know is actually Putin was the first uh, foreign Bush. government to call 
the United States after September 11th offering support. Because they were dealing with their own terrorist situation. Yeah, which actually we're going to be talking about not next season, but the season after. Yeah. So, oh, catching that. Yeah. Woo. Um, but uh, when the plan to invade, like to invade Afghanistan, was announced, Putin actually said, "I would not do that if I were you. You can't do it." Yeah. Aggression. They were. Yeah. He's like, "You can't do it." Yeah. He was right. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's kind of a. It was a different. It's, different now than like what was tried in Afghanistan before in a way but it's still but it's still up. ultimately running into the same problems oh yeah absolutely and like for the reason of like the Afghani people are they have a really strong like their culture is really strong yeah and so they do band together to fight against invaders because as much as they might not like each other they kind of like reserve the right to pick on each other and not have anyone else yeah. enter that space, right? It's almost like your sibling. It's like, you know, I can beat up on you, but as soon as someone else tries to beat up on them, they're like, oh, fuck you, I'm going to kill you. Like, no, no, you can't beat up on my brother. Yeah. It's like that. Exactly. And with each, within the country, I think. That's kind of the vibe I, I get out of it generally is that, like, all these warring factions come together as soon as a foreign invader comes because it's like, oh, fuck, okay. Yeah. Stop this infighting madness. <laughs> well, Mas- it's interesting like to talk about Masood mm-hmm. quite a bit because he's quite revered in the West and whatnot, mm-hmm. but he's very controversial in Afghanistan. Like, he's very popular with the Northern tribes because mm-hmm. he was leader of the, like, what, not of the Northern Alliance, but, I, oh, yeah, I think he was leader of the Northern Alliance for a bit. For those of you who don't know, the Northern Alliance was an alliance of... Uh, tribal groups in northern Afghanistan that were um, opposed to the Taliban. Masood was actually assassinated by <laughs> Al-Qaeda, and uh, two days later, 9-11 happened. But Masood is very is quite controversial in Afghanistan because there are like, the people in the north who love him. And like the thing is, apparently the national army in Afghanistan, uh, people will tell you it's, like, it's just basically the Northern Alliance because it's mostly made up of ethnic northern tribes people that were probably fighting in the north i feel like that's probably the case in like lots of i think that's probably not uncommon no definitely not it's the same like everywhere yeah but i mean like he um like uh, my friend john he he's he's in the army and he knows a lot he never went to afghanistan but he knows a lot of people who were and he says they would have people coming up like while he was in kabul saying look we know you love masood and whatnot but when you come driving into Afghanistan, like when the National Army comes driving to Afghanistan with pictures of Masood in their windows, like Masood did a lot of damage to Kabul during the battle. Like when he bombarded yeah. Kabul, a lot of innocent people were killed and whatnot. So they're like, basically that's the same as if you're throwing up a picture of Osama bin Laden in the middle of downtown New York, Manhattan. Yeah. yeah. Like he's like, there's, it's not like Masood was definitely not anywhere near as evil as bin laden was but he still did a lot of yeah he did his fair share and i like i honestly wonder sometimes too like and i think this happens all the time because hindsight's 2020 but like when we figured out osama bin laden was involved in 9-11 and like i just i wonder how long it took for a lot of people to make the connections between the soviet afghan war and like the united states supporting the mooj to all of a sudden oh shit al-qaeda is the mooj yeah <laughs> like i I just, I sort of wonder sometimes how long it took, and if I think it probably took a lot too long, I imagine. 
I don't know. I, it's no, just... I wouldn't, I, I'm thinking now, like, Mujahideen actually means something. It, it's, it's like... Yeah. So uh, it's not a group. It's not. It's not just one single group. It's okay. It's the on. plural form of mujahideen, the Arabic term for one engaged in jihad. Yeah. So it so, literally means fighter. Yeah, and G, for those of you the who don't know, jihadist grammatically yeah. corresponds to. And it. for those of you who don't know, the word jihad translates to struggle. War. Yeah. People think it means holy. it is. It, it is a holy war. It is a holy war, but it just means. It struggle. means struggle. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, uh, mujahideen is the singular term of mujahideen. Yeah. So, so. it's literally like a group of... I think even probably during the Crusades, they called the, the Muslims... They did. Called themselves and there's a bunch of other, like, other Mujahideen, like, uh, in the Cold War era, there's Myanmar, Philippines. Technically, the Muslim Bosniak fighters in the Yugoslav War were Mujahideen. Oh, yeah. they have, And guess who supported them? Yeah. Um, so, although, it's, it's not um, limited, but the, the Afghani Mujahideen are the most famous. Yeah. What's interesting is I've heard, as I read somewhere, that apparently the Bosniak uh, paramilitaries Mm -hmm. actually worked to distance themselves as much as they could from Bin Laden after 9/11. No, no, no. Um, Well, because like what people seem to forget is that Bin Laden had been wanted all through the 90s because he'd bombed a bunch of U.S. embassies. Yeah. And they so they they're like, well, maybe we should distance ourselves from him because we kind of want assistance from the United States yeah. in a way. Go go listen to our Yugoslav episodes kind of extent, but yeah. Um, so I, I'm pretty sure that there are people who call in Al-Qaeda that call themselves yeah. Mujahideen. Yeah. yeah, when we say Mujahideen, we mean like this particular group, but it is actually a yeah. I mean, even larger this, term. And even the, like, and this, like, well, I think actually most people who say the Mujahideen, they mean Afghani Mujahideen. The, the, yeah. yeah, they do. But like literally the, Muj- the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, like there's a bunch of different groups that we yeah. we didn't bother naming them no. all because they're, 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 they're all, there's a lot of them and they're actually fairly difficult to pronounce. Yeah. <laughs> I think we did pretty good with pronunciations this episode. I don't know what it is with like. Yeah, with, it wasn't bad. No. There's a couple, but I mean. Not bad. I think we did pretty well. A lot better than Mongolia. Yeah. Oh my God! Yes. Yeah, I'm still. Um, do you have a interesting fact? I do. What's up? So uh, it's kind of related, and this is one of my favorite things. So Leonid Brezhnev had a daughter, uh, Galina Brezhneva, and she fucking loved jewels, like loved them. And so, really, she in a way was like. A lot of uh, historians kind of peg her as like actually like an all too typical product of what came from the era of stagnation was basically just like heavy drinking, not a great temper, like very little self-discipline, like, and very much, it's kind of like everyone because alcoholism and like a lot of those types of systemic problems really spurred during this period. But anyway, so she loved jewelry and diamonds and your father being the general sucker, that helps. So anyway, in 1982, when Andropov was doing an anti-corruption campaign, while Brezhnev was still alive, a lot of jewelry smugglers who were connected to her were arrested. And uh, it was actually later proven that she was smuggling jewelry out of the Soviet Union on such a scale that it actually threatened De Beers. It threatened... Like De Beers mining. Like wow. the, di- the diamond miners in Russia. Well, and everywhere, all over the world. Because she was smuggling so much in. Yeah. 
out. What? Like, oh, what out. the fuck? She was exporting more, uh, like, unofficially. Oh, my God. That they, like, so they're like, what the, like, she was flooding the market, and De Beers is like, excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. That's hilarious. So, um, it's just really funny, because, like, she got, like, it was proven, and so, and Dropov had to bring her in, but being the daughter of Brezhnev kind of helped, because they dismissed the charges against her. Um, she was internally exiled, though. She, yeah, she was. But um, after Gorbachev took over, another investigation um, happened. But there was never any. She was arrested on charges of corrupt corruption, but there was nothing ever like solid produced on her post-1982 criminal activities. But it's still just, I love it. She just smuggled awesome. so many fucking diamonds out of the country that De Beers is like, hey. <laughs> well, there are three things I love about this fact. Is First of all, it's a great fact. Yeah. Secondly, you're calling back to Brezhnev. And third, you're calling back to Jules. Yeah. And I fucking love it. Crushed it. Um, mine has nothing to do with... Doesn't matter. Anything. And by the way, this was unrelated to my research. Like, I knew this already. <laughs> That's awesome. Because <laughs> I'm a I nerd. It. But I it's really just perfect it, yeah. for this episode. I think it's great, yeah. It, like, I, I found it... I, I knew it. And then I was kind of reminded of it in my research. And I was right. like, yes. I love it. So, people who know me, I kind of have a fascination with looking up different political parties. Just... Weird interest of mine. I like seeing what they're up about, like from different countries as well. The largest political party in the world is Bharatiya Jana. Uh, the oh, I'm gonna butcher the pronunciation of this. Make up for the whole rest of the fucking episode. <laughs> Bharatiya Janata, Janata Party from India. So anyone who's from India listens to us, you could butcher me in the comments. But yeah, they are the largest political party. They are also the governing political party. And they have 180 million members. Damn. The second largest is the Communist Party of China with 90.59 million. Guess what number three is? This shocked me. It's the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is the third largest party in the world. Huh. I know. With 44,706,350 members. Number four is the GOP. Well, that does make sense. Like the Democratic and Republican parties being next to each other makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. Number five, just for out of interest, is the Indian National Congress, which is the main opposition party in India right now, with 20 million members. So, anyway, that's my my fact. I hope you're okay with that. Yeah. Um, But anyway. It's interesting. Um, so we're going to wrap up now, I guess. This is a longer episode, but I don't know. Some of you don't really don't mind longer episodes. Some of you really do. So to the people who do, I really apologize. But has been a couple weeks. We had a lot to go through. Yeah. Because honestly, without that background, you would not really understand anything. Especially like that whole background on Brezhnev, I think, was actually necessary. Yeah. Well, I think... It's important to understand the leaders who are involved. And again, also something that's still very current. Yeah. And we're still dealing with, like, Afghanistan is still definitely dealing with the aftermath of this. Like, they're still living it. Yeah. So I felt it was important to kind of... I want to give Afghanistan justice because apparently, like, despite everything else, it is a very beautiful country. And people well, are very I was beautiful. looking at photos of the um, Tanger uh, Valley. I was looking at photos when I was doing research and like, it's fucking beautiful. Yeah, it's amazing. (laughs) 
and and also that documentary that I told you to watch on Afghanistan. Uh, it's called Afghanistan: The Great Game. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I believe it was done by the BBC. It's a few part. It's a five part. Five part up. up yeah. Um, yeah. BBC. It's super super interesting. Um, oh my! I lied. It's actually only two episodes. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> But it's uh, it's super interesting because he talks about like the whole history of Afghanistan and like uh, his per- the, his perspective is really fascinating. But anyways, he spent a lot of time in Afghanistan. Obviously, a lot of the documentary was filmed there, and yeah, it's gorgeous. Like, <laughs> looks really cool. Yeah. Um, also, I'll post uh, the documentary. This is what winning looks like because it also gives you a perspective of how people in Afghanistan today dealing with because like a lot of like obviously there's a lot of people like oh there are people who support the like of course there's still people who support the taliban and it's like well they support it's better explained that they support anyone who whoever's in their front yard at the time because i mean that's something i think humans as a whole would do yeah because they don't want to get killed well it's it's self-preservation exactly it's preservation for yourself and your family like, I'm not going to step up against them and fight them because yeah. they're, they're better trained and equipped. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? So I'll post this documentary as well. Um, cool. But and with that said, I think the next episode is our lo- the love story between Gorbachev and uh, Reagan. Reagan. The bromance. Uh, Gorbachev and Reagan, a love story. <laughs> we should have released that today, or we should have recorded that and had it released on Valentine's Day. Damn it. Yeah, we're Hello. still learning the. We're we're getting this timing of episodes thing. Yeah, it's a. I don't think that episode will be too long. Nah. Uh, if you like what you hear and you want to support us, please find us on Patreon. Uh, we're on Twitter, at Instagram, Facebook, at Panhistoria Pod, at Panhistoria Podcast. Uh, please consider supporting us. We'd really appreciate it. Um, More stuff coming soon. I'm Kevin gonna, needs to eat. Yeah, we both need. To, we all well, three we of all us need, need to eat. eat. But. Um, <laughs> More blog posts will be coming up fairly soon. We're, again, sorry, we did explain like why we haven't been posting blog posts. It's because we kind of had to put priorities around, and our main priority is the podcast. So yeah, we're, uh, we're working on some we're working on some good stuff. So and uh, we love you all, and, and we'll uh, see you soon. See you soon. Take care. Landed on the hilltop, Soviet forces,